I attend a relatively small Christian college. This college has a very old, very large library, which I work at. I've been working at it going on about a year. So I've been here late at night and such. Now, despite being a Christian, I am rather skeptical in regards to spirits and ghosts, but I believe they are tricks of the mind. Now, I have a friend called Veronica, and she is very in tune with spiritual things, most likely from her history of being attacked by spirits when she would visit her Wiccan father. She works at the library too, and even during the times when the library is mostly completely empty, she believes there's some kind of entity on the third floor, such that she actually does all in her power to avoid going up there alone. Now, I'd never thought anything about the third floor, but not too long after our discussion, I went up there alone very late at night. A lot of the aisles had lights off and it was very dark outside. As I turned around, I saw something slip back into one of the aisles and I quickly noped out of there. Since then, I have found some interesting developments. I found out the college is extremely old and has been in existence for over 150 years. 120 or so spent at the current location. It also retains very old buildings, some being over a century old. I told everyone about the weird shadow creature on the third floor of the library, but now I have more information. I recently discovered that the building built in the early 1900s was at first a church before being remodeled into a library. This goes towards the history of the building. Next, I had another encounter. I was once again tasked with shelving books on the third floor and had to go down one of the side units. To describe it, imagine a big rectangle with two lines parallel and through the middle. Those lines are walkways and to the far right is study areas and the windows, letting in light and all the way to the left is bookshelves lit by lights. Now the way the lighting works on those side tracks is they have a big strip of tubes down the middle of the rows and you press a button which turns on the light and the timer. I've been told and have experienced that the timers for the lights stay on and should last an hour or so. That being said, I turn on the lights in the side stacks, head on it and start shelving books. When not a minute later, the lights flicker off. I then hear rapid footsteps walking away. I, of course, am already uncomfortable on the third floor so I rush to see if it's a co-worker who knows it's me upstairs. Nope. I look two to three rows in the direction and see no one, nor any indication of a person. These rows are too big, so that means someone would have had to have dashed about 20 plus feet and hide in another black stack to have outrun me. And it didn't sound like they were running. So I call it quits there and then and head back down, telling my supervisor that the shelves were too tight for the other books. Recently, however, she sent me to shelve books at least once a week. And some patron, God knows why, seems to solely take books from the third floor. To combat the skeptics who might say, it's a wiring issue or faulty lighting. We have had the campus maintenance team up there a handful of times, and more for the stack, and they can absolutely find nothing wrong with it. I've also been asking around and I'm not the only one who feels watched on the third floor. Not only this, one of my female friends went into one of the corners of the stacks 
looking for a book, and felt the temperature drop down so much she began to shiver, and almost fainted. This was when it was about 80 or so degrees outside. I had went into the gas station with a co-worker to fill up on gas. When I was on my way to walk inside, this woman with long, red and matted hair kept on staring me down. I even said, evening ma'am, as I went inside. As I got in, I turned and looked and she was still staring. So I went about my business, grabbed a drink, and was fixing up a hot dog. When I see that she is still staring, I turned to my co-worker and told him she was being a creeper. My co-worker just replied, she was just admiring my beauty, as smart ass as anyone ever could be. He then later noticed that she was acting weird towards me. And as we went to leave, I mentioned to the clerk that they had a doozy on their hands, see lot lizards there all the time, and mentioned, yeah, she had ran off with people and had been there for three days prior to this one. Anyway, as I went to turn around and leave, she was pressed up against the door, holding them shut and staring at me. I motioned with my hand for her to move, and she took a step back. I blew through the left exit door and sprinted back to the truck. The next night, I hadn't seen her before work and thought she had left, but that night I had a pack of smokes and some gas. I entered and exited and never saw her until I was about to leave. As I put the fueling pump away, I could feel someone had come up behind me, and sure as hell it was her. I just slowly turned as I opened the door, and she tried to force her way into my truck. Luckily, another co-worker was at the pump next to mine and forced her off me, and a police officer was there to help assist and put her out in his squad car. Ever since, I tend to stay away from that place. I'm a big guy. I couldn't move an inch due to sheer fear, and even conceal and carry couldn't move a single inch. I'm in the Navy, and I currently work on a base which encompasses an island called Saint Clement Island. The island itself is mostly deserted and untouched, but on the north end of the island is a town, for lack of a better word, where the Navy and contractors live. One night I was heading down to relieve a co-worker from watch. As I'm driving down the road, which is mostly pitch black, I see a figure in the street in my headlights. Naturally, I slam the brakes. I begin cussing up a storm because some idiot is walking in the middle of the road at night. Shortly after, however, I noticed it isn't a person, but more of a solid shadow. You could make up no features on it, but it had mass and was human shaped. It was in the middle of the road, sort of stomping, almost like a weird dance. Then suddenly it was just gone. It didn't fade away, didn't do anything dramatic. It was just gone. I freaked out and told a lot of my co-workers who didn't believe me. I never saw it again, but holy crap was I afraid. I've heard stories of people on the island having doors in their work areas open, and stuff on their own, but no stories similar to mine. I don't know much about the history of the island itself, but I do know at some point it was owned by Native Americans, and often remains of them are found or unearthed. 
often buried with the remains of foxes. I live in Eastern Europe, more exactly in Romania. You may have heard about those gypsy witches that live in my country. Most of them are just pretending to be something they're not. This, however, is the story of a real witch. My grandmother used to live in the same village with a witch. I don't know if the witch was a gypsy or Romanian, but it doesn't really matter. She lived for so many years that no one knew her age. This woman claimed to be a witch, and she had also claimed that she had this demon who served her. She used to talk about the way she sold her soul one night in the forest while performing a ritual. In return, she gained powers and the help of a demon. She said that she couldn't die until she convinced someone to take full charge and responsibility of her duty as a witch and sell his or her soul to the darkness as well. She, I believe, had three daughters, but people said that their mother's behavior scared them away. They moved to Bucharest and never returned to the village. Now you will say that she was most likely a crazy old woman, but no. A lot of people heard weird noises coming from her attic, and she agreed that the sounds were made by her slave demon. People, even though afraid, asked her to solve their problems and gave her money for doing so. No one ever complained about her work, no one. Everything was put in place no matter how difficult the task was. People witnessed a lot of hard work getting done overnight in her yard and garden things that she wasn't able to do alone. My grandmother met a woman on her way to work. The woman asked my grandmother about the witch. She wanted to know where the witch lived. My grandma gave indications and then asked her why she was going to go see her. She said that a thief broke into her house and stole her savings, and she wanted her money back. The next day, my grandmother met the woman again. She carried a bag and my grandma asked her what happened. She said that she went to the witch and received the promise that she would be able to find the money on the table when she returned home. The witch asked in advance for half the money. The woman agreed. It was better than nothing. And things happened exactly as the witch foretold. And she carried the promised money in the bag on the way to the witch's house. Another story is that a woman fell in love with a married man. She went to the witch and told her that she wanted that man. The witch asked her if she wanted the man no matter what the consequences were. She said yes, and in less than a month, his wife got ill and passed. He remarried, and he got married to the woman who asked for his wife to fall. That's why she was seen as a powerful and real witch. For sure, she had some supernatural powers. Unfortunately, I don't know if she's still alive. In my first year of driving a semi, I was pretty naive to what happens in truck stops and rest areas to say the least. Not knowing the world around me can have some pretty awful places. That being said, 
I took a load out to New York City, heading to Savannah. With the hours I had left, I planned to stop for my break in Jessup. Arrived while the sun was still up, around 6.30pm, and didn't think much of my surroundings, so I went inside to eat. After eating, I went back outside to see literally 60 women wandering around everywhere. I had to guess they must have been between the ages of 18 to 75. I was propositioned at least 15 times on my way back to my truck, and it didn't stop there. All through the night, I had a lot of lot lizards knocking on my truck door. Worst place ever to take a break. I never stopped there any longer. These women all looked like they chose meth as a career in life. Jessup MDTA is a place of sadness and despair. I lived in the RGV, living in Edinburgh, but grew up in Rio Grande City my entire life. My grandma told me stories of her encounters with the Lechuza when I was a kid. I was usually skeptical of mystical tales, but when it came to my grandmother, I bought her stories. It wasn't until I had my own experience that I was fully invested in other old wives' tales and folklore. I was out at a friend's ranch north of Rio Grande City with my buddy and a cousin of mine, a mutual friend and my buddy's dad. We were putting up some fence posts and barbed wire so we can corral some stray cattle that had wandered onto the property and keep them there until we found the owner. The sun was setting, so we decided to call it a day. We built a bonfire close by and huddled up in an unfinished ranch hand's house. Basically, a concrete slab surrounded by four walls and no roof. We were drinking and just shooting the breeze and telling stories from high school, when eventually, we got to stories of the paranormal. My buddy is a huge skeptic, mostly because he's afraid of it. So he kept trying to steer the conversation away from ghosts and such. I decided to share a lechuza story my grandmother told me. Once I got to describing the creature, we heard an ungodly screech, almost ear-piercing. We all turned to look in the direction of the screech, and before my eyes can adjust to the darkness, I hear my buddy screaming that it's a lechuza, and he hauls ass to the main ranch house a few hundred yards away. I turn back to the darkness, and see a giant silhouette of an owl perched on one of the posts we had driven earlier in the day. It was massive. So naturally, I did one of the two things they tell you never to do. I whistled at it. This thing screeched again and spread out its wings. Its wingspan had to be in at least seven feet in each direction, so 14 feet. The fence posts were spaced about 16 feet apart, and its wings almost spanned half the distance. Scared out of my mind, I pumped my chubby tree trunk thighs as hard as I could and ran. As I had the back door to the ranch house in view, I got to see my buddy run in and close the door behind him. My cousin and our friend got their moments later too, and I hadn't noticed they took off right after my buddy, and were kicking and pounding on the door nearly in tears. I get about halfway there and look back to the unfinished house, and see the gigantic bird perched up on one of the walls, its face catching the moonlight as it cocks its head sideways, kind of how a dog does when they hear the owner make a strange sound. In the mere moment of its face being lit up, 
I swear I was able to make out human-like features with a bonfire lighting up the area behind it. I finally reach the ranch house and my buddy's dad opens the door and we're almost in tears. I rush in, close the door behind me, and my buddy's dad demands to know what's going on. Trying to catch my breath, I tell him with the others adding their points of view as well. We all look out the back door to see if it's still there and just try to convince ourselves that we saw a regular owl and my buddy's dad called us some rude names between chuckles. We scanned the horizon and I'm armed with a baseball bat I found at the back door, my buddy with his firearm and there's no bird. We got back with flashlights, me, my bat, my cousin and a few weapons. We got back with our equipment and our friend stayed back at the ranch house. He was done for the night. We get back to the bonfire to snuff it out. Smokey the bear was always kind of an influence on me and we investigate the surrounding area. My buddy's dad breaks off from the group to check out the fence post to make sure they're undisturbed while we just hang back to think what happened. After a bit, we go join my buddy's dad and find him standing in front of the post we had originally seen the lechos are perched on. We never told him which one specifically, so I was kind of surprised to see him at the one. And then we saw the claw marks. This happened to me way back in my college life. I still live in Asia. I was in a boy's dormitory and it was a five-story dormitory building. In front of our dormitory is the all girls dormitory. There, the paranormal activity happened. The same building with us, five-story too, same building plan since the owner of the dormitory is the same. It's like copy-paste blueprints on each side of the road. I met this girl who was in that dormitory. We happened to see each other every morning and along the way to school making me have an excuse to walk with her every morning. She's pretty and friendly, so knowing her wasn't that hard. We were also at the same university, just at a different program. I was in civil engineering and she was in chemical engineering. I'm a third grade college student while she's a fresh one. Let's say older college boy appeal better to freshman girls. So we get on the dating scene fast and got hooked up pretty quickly. I kind of befriended the night shift security and I know the security guard since I always greet him whenever I walk her every night. I bribed him one night so that I could stay up there. The dormitory have this strict rule of no visitors 24 hours and the girl's dormitory has a curfew of 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. but they lack CCTV. She didn't share a room, she rented the solo room which cost the same amount as what we pay for a room of four. Our first night was awesome, but I had to go around 4am and return to my own dormitory. It was around 3.30am when I woke up and got ready to go outside. I didn't wake her since we still had class later. I got out of her room, then in the hallway. On my right is straight on their toilet, which is shared, then on my left was leading to stairs. I was about to go down the stairs when I heard a door opening. So I ducked, quickly walked down the stairs slowly. I didn't want to cause a noise. She's in the fourth floor, so I have a long way to go. I was at the middle of a landing of the stairs leading to the third floor. When someone called me, hey, 
I got startled and looked up. There wasn't anyone there. I figured it out that it could be her. Her voice is like whispering or somehow low with a kind of horsey husk. I went upstairs again to look, but there's no one there. I got some chills, but it was almost 4am and security shift is around 4.30. So I headed down. Then again, I was in the landing and I heard her voice two consecutive times. I went upstairs again, but there's no one. I turn around and say screw it, run to the second floor and I heard it again, a chuckle or giggle. And I rushed to the ground floor, saw the security guard sleeping and passed him and went straight to my own door. I woke up late, missed two classes that day and several phone calls from her and my friends. My dorm mates didn't wake me. I called her and asked her to meet me at this fast food place where we usually eat lunch and explained everything that happened. She told me it was the ghost of the girl who ended her life tragically in that building. Well, I got creeped out by that. She told me that the girl did it because she got pregnant and her lover left her. Depressed and afraid of her parents, she ended her own life. I asked her where she got the info from and she said that the janitor told her about it. From that day onwards, I didn't return to her dorm. I didn't take my chances of seeing that ghost girl again. I was in class with a few military police officers and heard some stories. There were multiple times where they would get calls or alarms going off in parts of the hangars we work. And when they responded, no one is in the hangar anywhere near the phone or in the room the call came from. One guy that worked the dispatch desk at night said for two weeks straight, he'd get a call at exactly 3.15 every morning and there would be no sound whatsoever. He left the phone on for five minutes to listen for any sound and there'd be nothing. Not a dial tone, breathing or background noise, nothing. Another, was when they would exercise or train on the weekend in our hangars and they would see things move around the aircraft or across the hangar from where they are. When they would investigate, there wouldn't be anyone in there with them. It wasn't any of us because we didn't work nights on weekends. The last one. My base is next to a mountain and one section of it extends all the way to the base and up the side of the mountain. All along that area are little silos or channels running into the mountain. None of them are used and they're all locked up tight, have been for years. One night they got an alarm going off in one of those little channels and were sent to investigate. Shortly after the alarm, they got a phone call from there and when they picked up the line went dead. When they arrived, the door was locked as usual and showed no signs it had ever been messed with within the last 10 years. They opened the door and took a look inside. There was a ladder that went down a lower room and inside that room, there were signs that someone was living there and they seemed fresh. A few bottles of water, a foam pad to sleep on, some bags, none of it seemed to have dust or anything. As soon as they saw it, they left and locked it up tight. They had security sit there till morning and had someone come out to chain the door shut. I'm a mail carrier. 
I know, super interesting, right? Honestly, you'd be surprised at the amount of weird stuff that happens to us. I've had people follow me while I'm delivering and trying to get into my delivery vehicle to steal stuff. I've had a customer vomit on my car after she opened a parcel her husband sent her that was meant to go to his mistress. I have delivered adult toys that fell out of their flimsy packaging and I have seen people doing it near my more secluded routes and they didn't stop for me. This is the kind of stuff that typically happens to us contract carriers. For those who don't know, contract carriers are mail carriers who buy a contract for a mail route that is typically in a rural area, from what I understand. The fancy mail jeeps cannot traverse them, so we use our own vehicles to deliver the mail, and we are paid on a monthly basis depending on the type of route, how long the route takes, and the day-to-day -day stuff, and what the post office deems as fair. Technically, we're self-employed, but we still have to abide by the rules of the post office, and we have to become certified to even touch the mail. But of course, being in the areas that we are in most of the time, that kind of weird stuff I mentioned happens all the time. Those things happened to me when I was a sub, someone who works for a contract holder but does not own the route in any way. I was paid by the person who owns the route out of their own pocket. Now, however, I am the somewhat disgruntled owner of a 10 year route contract for the first time. I've owned the contract for about seven months. It's a pretty easy gig. The route itself only takes about two and a half hours to case, sort the mail for delivery, and another good three to four hours to deliver on a good day, five to six on super heavy days. I'm not looking forward to how the holidays fare on this route. Thing is, before I got the contract, I had no idea what I was bidding on. The way someone gets a contract is that they bid for it. The person bidding will give a month's salary amount that they feel would be fairish for the route in question. The post office and bid holders then decide which amount is the most accurate, in their oh so wise opinion, for the route, and they give it to whoever has that amount. I was lucky enough to get it. So I get a pretty damn good pay that I technically chose for myself. All I know of the roots was that it went down into the valley. I live in a very small desert city with some very wide outlying mini communities. These outlying areas are where the majority of our office contract routes deliver to. My route goes 25 miles out of town to a lot of small ranch properties in the closer areas, and some pretty scattered random loner properties in the farthest areas. There are a lot of hills, and the dirt roads where I go to, it's very easy to get lost out there if you don't know where you're going. There's one area in particular that goes through a small forest, nestled between a random outcropping of hills, heading out onto the state highway. It's not like an evergreen forest or anything, that's just the closest definition I can give. There's not really trees so much as gigantic bushes that nestle together very closely on either side of the road, that is towards the end of the route, but it takes up a good chunk of my customers' addresses. When I was training, the previous owner of the route, called Jim, gave me a rundown of the people who live on the route. 
There are a lot of ranch owners, of course, and they are the ones who get the most parcels. This isn't surprising to me, since they're the richest people out there. We, of course, call that section the ranches. There are the elderly retirees that live at a tiny retirement community set up by the city out there. It's pretty spread out, like a teeny tiny town of their own. That's the area with the second most amount of parcels, lots of random buying, and sometimes gifts from relatives. We call that area the retirement homes. These are the customers I speak to the most. There's the outskirters, as Jim called them. There are the people who live so far off the grid that most of the time we don't deliver packages to them. As a general rule, we are not allowed to deliver boxes to our house if it is more than three miles away from the mailbox. Most of them live about five or six miles from the boxes, and their boxes are in a long line, or clusters as we call them, on the side of the road. As a courtesy to these customers, I ask them to give me their phone number so I can call them if they have a parcel and they can meet me at the box. Most of them don't mind, and I'm grateful for them, because a lot of these roads are treacherous. I once tried to be nice and deliver a box to one of them, and got stuck, unable to move my car, for almost four hours as I lost service. Eventually they found me, and that's when they gave me their number at last. They don't get many boxes though in that part of the route. And then is what Jim called the ghost town. It's not really a town per se, but more of the secluded homes like the previous area. But these guys are closer to the road, and they're the ones who live in the forest I mentioned before. He called it the ghost town for good reason. These people are either never home, as most of them are snowbirds, or the ones who are, are very creepy. There are a few homes out there that are usually vacant, that have a lot going on. For the stories I'm about to tell you, there are three homes involved. Two of them are in the ghost town. The other one takes place in the outskirts area, and that last one is the worst. There's more, honestly, but these are by far the more interesting as far as history and the stuff that's happened. Number one, the Bailey Cluster. The Bailey Cluster is a group of homes in the ghost town that belongs to a single family with the name Bailey. The mailboxes are all nestled together on the same side of the road against some of those large bushes in the forest. Just before the mailboxes, there are four total. It's a small dirt road that leads up to their property. The whole road has to be about four feet across. That's how it feels when you're driving up because the bushes on either side will scrape the sides of my car. I've gotten more than a few scratches because of them. I've asked them to trim down the bushes, but they never do, so I just gave up. When you get to the property, you're met with a large, six-foot-tall, rusted iron gate with the name Bailey fashioned out of bent horseshoes and pipes welded to the top. As a general rule, if the gate is shut, we are never encouraged to try and open it to drive in. We aren't really supposed to walk in if it's shut either, unless the customer has told us it's okay. For the Baileys, I get out and walk their parcels through the gate and up to the first house, which isn't far from the gate. I have to state now, I have never once met these people in person. I've spoken to them on the phone, and I've been on their property, 
but I have never once seen hide nor hair of them. There are a total of 10 people at the address, and their mail is split up as if their homes are in like a trailer park. For example, one of them gets their mail at 111 Ghost Town Road Mobile One, Little Desert Town, la 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 la, and the other person number two, number three, number four, and so on. Every time I bring the parcel, I just leave it at the first house. Once you walk through their gate, you have to walk uphill a bit and you can see the teal green roof of the first house peeking up over the hill as you walk. And when you get closer, it becomes apparent why the place is so unsettling. Clowns. These people love clowns. There are clown statues, paintings, mobiles, wind chimes, you name it, it has a clown on it. They even have clown dolls scattered around the place. None of them look nice. They're all threadbare and worn out for sitting in the hot desert sun all day. I'm pretty sure animals have made homes in some of them. There are a few that are big enough to house a small family of squirrels. Now I know that this isn't bizarre yet, and I'm getting there, I promise. But you have to admit that this is more than a little odd. The first house is a simple single wide mobile with a bright teal green painted roof. The windows all have clown decals in them, little clown faces that look like they're straight out of a vintage coloring book, hand colored and everything. At one end of the place is the porch, not too big, and it juts out about six or seven feet. There are small awnings with dozens of clowns, wind chimes and sun catchers hanging from it, almost making a curtain out of them so they're clustered together. On the porch is a rocking chair. This thing is painted like a clown. The curved rockers are painted red. The legs that attach them to the chair are yellow with red polka dots. Their seat and arms are white and the back is white with three big red dots painted on it like puffballs on a clown shirt. The top part of the back has a clown face on it. Put it all together and it's a nightmare. This chair is where I'm asked to leave the parcels, and I do, but I'll never forget the first time I left them there. There were four boxes for them, number one, and the rest for number three. I called ahead of time to let them know I'd take them there, and I'd be there in about three hours, since they're towards the end of the route. It takes longer to get to them, and I'm always told by who I assume is their matriarch to leave them on that chair. I'd never been up to their property at this point, I'd been delivering about a month, but only ever had mail and small parcels that fit in the box for them. So when I went up there for the first time, seeing their little clown cluster was a bit nerve wracking to say the least, as I am terrified of clowns and have been since I was a child. But that's a story for another time. I crept up to that first house and peered around the place. It was so isolated and odd, I felt like every single clown around me was watching me. I placed the boxes on the chairs in a neat little pile and settled on the chairs to stop it from rocking so the boxes wouldn't fall off. Once it was still, I turned and hastily tried to leave. It was the creaking that stopped me. I froze and listened, knowing full well what it was. I turned and sure as hell that chair was rocking and not just a little, but enough to knock one of the boxes on the porch. It was like someone had deliberately pulled it all the way back and thrust it forwards to the rocks as violently as possible. 
I didn't hesitate. I just ran and noped the hell out of there. I'm not staying after that. Another time I had a parcel for them, and I almost wrote it up out of protest, but I called again and was asked to leave it on the chair. This is the time I noticed that it felt like no one was there. I'd been there a dozen times by that point, and I remember standing on the top of the hill by the gate, just peering around me like, where is everyone? According to their mail, there are at least a few children that live there. And when I was there that day, it was the middle of summer. Why weren't the kids home playing outside? Why didn't I ever see anyone? The second and third house were a bit far away from the first house. It'd be about a five minute walk, I think, to get to them. But you can see them pretty well. Curtains always open, but I never see anyone inside. The fourth house is the furthest away at the top hill. They have built a big picture window facing the gate. It too always has the curtains open, but I've never seen anyone there. Weirdest of all, their vehicles are always there. They never move. They are two old trucks, an SUV relatively newish, and an old station wagon. The wagon looks run down, but the others look like they're taken care of and always clean. This other time I had a parcel, I noticed no one was ever around. I got curious and phoned the woman. I always do when bringing parcels. I figured I'd just tell her I was making sure someone would be back soon to get the parcel, as there is a lot of theft out there. There usually is on more secluded routes. You'd be surprised how much more common it is out there than in the city. I heard a phone ringing in the house beside me. If I'm on the porch, I can peek into the window just behind the evil rocking chair. It was close, the phone that was ringing, and I wanted to see someone pick it up. I squeezed myself behind the chair and looked in. I'd never looked inside before. More clowns, of course, and some clown-themed froze on the couch and pillows too. On a side table, clearly visible from the window, I could see the cell phone lit up with Mail Lady as the caller ID. No one answered. But when I left, she called me back. She'd gone about five minutes when she did. I just told her I wanted to be sure someone was home. And she said, someone is always here. According to Jim, he never saw anyone there either. The third and final most interesting thing to ever happen at the Bailey Cluster was just last month. I got a very large box for them, one I needed a dolly for. I called before I even left the post office to let them know, and the lady I always spoke to told me she would have her oldest son help me. I thought, finally, I get to meet one of them. This ought to be good, right? I get there, it's my last package, and then I was free to breeze through the final 50 or so boxes I have after them. I have a total of 670 boxes on my route. I go to the back, pull out the dolly, slide the box out onto it, and start dragging it up the gate. I look around. No one met me, of course. The lady told me he'd be waiting for me on the porch of the first house, and when he saw me, he'd come down to help. You can see the gate from the porch pretty well, but I could never really see my car from it, so I honked just in case he couldn't see me either. No one came down. I waited for about five minutes before saying, screw it, I'm taking it up. I struggled up the hill with it. I didn't know what was in the box, but I'm pretty sure it weighed about 75 pounds. The post office 
have a 70 pound weight limit that a lot of companies try to stretch to 75 or 80. Usually they'd go to UPS, but sometimes they'd slip through the cracks and come by us. I get to the first house and of course no one's there. I look around and as usual, I'm all alone with a bunch of clown dolls gaping at me. I wiggle the box up the chairs on the dolly and lean it against the railing next to the rocking chair. It's way too big to sit it on and I head down to my car. That's when I hear a thank you from behind me. It's a man's voice. I quickly run back up the hill and not only is there no one there, but the box has gone from the porch. This was in the span of 10 seconds. I wasn't even down the hill all the way. It doesn't take that long to walk back down. I look in the window and everywhere, not seeing a soul. I hate going to the Bailey cluster and I end up going there a lot. Number two, the blood house. This place is the one that gives me the most creeps. While I was training, Jim told me about this place. This is another snowbird place where the people only live there between October and March. They were there when I started and they came back the beginning of this month. Super nice couple. I really like them, but not a clue why they live here. Jim told me that back in the early 90s when he first started working at the post office, the guy who used to do the routes before him told him the story. According to him, there was a family of five that lived there. All of them were absolutely crazy. The mum had schizophrenia and would apparently abuse the kids because of voices. The father was no better. He was a worthless drunk who just sat by while his wife hurt the kids. One night, the eldest child of 18 was fed up with how they were raised and tried to escape with his siblings. The mother of course tried to stop them and the kid finally snapped. He killed his parents and painted the walls with their blood. The incident changed him. And while his siblings escaped, he stayed in the house with his parents corpses until he ended up cutting his own throat and tried painting the floor in his blood before succumbing to his blood loss and perishing himself. They weren't found for months. The place was cleared out and torn down and rebuilt. And the guy who built the new house was compelled to paint the house red. It's not obnoxious red, but it's too red. If that makes sense. There's no long driveway up to this place. It sits right on the end of the road at the end of the ghost town. The end is literally a dead end road. And they're right there at the tail end of where the sign tells you to turn around. The current owners, let's just call them Mr. and Mrs. Nice because they're nice and I'm not that creative, have told me countless horror stories about living there. Sometimes I think that they get some sort of sick thrill out of it. When they're not there, I forward everything. But I always have to pass their house to get to the turnaround spot. And their neighbors always have mail. So I have to go by there no matter what. I've seen some really weird stuff there. But every time I pass the blood house, I just get this awful feeling of dread. Whenever I did deliver packages to them, I'd step out of the car and just stand at the edge of the driveway. It feels like standing at the precipice of a cliff. It feels like stepping onto their property. It's like jumping to my doom. It's terribly unsettling. I honestly don't know how they stay there for as long as they do. 
I mean, they leave for six months out of the year, so I guess for them it might not be too bad. But if I feel that way just delivering packages once in a while, I don't know, it just doesn't make sense to me. Mrs. Nice told me to always watch the third row window from the left, because that's where the son went mad and where he likes to sit. She calls him Tommy, despite the fact it's not his real name, but she feels like it suits him. She talks about him like he's her own son. I think she pities him. She believes that his soul is trapped because of all the terrible things he did. When she first told me, my reaction was, no thanks. But one day the temptation got the best of me, and I looked. When you're at their mailbox, you can see into all their windows. The house is long, one story place with six windows, three on either side of the small front door. Of course, the house is red with the trim and the door all white. The window in question is the one that sits right next to the front door on the left. So I looked in and couldn't believe my eyes. I didn't see a full bodied apparition or anything like that, but I definitely saw a face and it looked so anguished, like the happy and sad mask you see for drama and theater. It looked like the sad mask, just pinned. I blinked and the face was suddenly gone and the curtain which had been open was closed. On another occasion, I walked up to the house to put a package by the door. The nice couple weren't home that day. Their truck was gone, so I decided to put the package around the back and leave a note in their box to let them know, since I didn't have a number for them at the time. When I walked around the back, I put the package over the small fence into the backyard. Once I did, I turned and felt myself run into someone, but there wasn't anything in front of me. Nothing but air. But I swear I felt someone was in front of me. I didn't want to move forward. It was like an invisible wall had erected before me. And while I couldn't see it, I knew that if I went any further, I'd get hurt. I just felt oppressive and strange. I actually backed up into the house and slid along the wall all the way to the front. And whatever invisible force was there, I felt like it followed me. I actually began to weep because I felt like there was a person just pressing up against me as I moved, like they were trying to force me back. Once I hit the edge of the house, I ran. I ran to the car and sped away, crying most of the way back, because it was so terrifying. When I told Mrs. Nice about it next time I saw her, she said Tommy likes to do that. He tries to intimidate people, and he does it to Mr. Nice all the time, apparently. Around the third week after the Nices left for their summer home, I passed the house and swore I saw someone standing at the mailbox. But it wasn't solid. It was like a blurred outline of a person. And when I got closer, as I passed, the head seemed to turn with me as I drove, watching me. I do not like passing the house. I'm glad they're back for the winter. It makes me feel a bit more at ease to know they're there but I still don't like the idea of delivering packages to them, as I don't want to be anywhere near Tommy. And of course, I have saved the worst house for last, the Hills Have Eyes house. I hate this house. This is the one that isn't in the ghost town. This is in the section before it, the outskirters. 
These are the homes that are so scattered we usually won't bring parcels to them because they're so far away. But this house gets an exception because it's less than a mile from the cluster of boxes they get their mail at. These people are never home. Jim told me that apparently they're very rude and hostile. He instructed me to just go to their gate and if they have a parcel, always bring the mail with it or they will call and complain. Leave the parcel in the basket that hangs in their fence with their mail in a rubber band and leave. He said to never linger there. He told me that if I did, they got hostile. I do as I'm told, but thankfully they've almost never been home. But something is, I know that sounds cheesy, but it's true. I don't know the history of the place itself, just that these people are apparently the world's biggest pricks. Two men live there, brothers from what Jim told me. They run a small chicken farm and bring their eggs to the feed store in town to sell all the time. It's not uncommon to see their chickens roaming around the roads leading up to the house. The road itself is barely a road. It's more like a bumpy little walking trail, but it's the only way to get there. And I know I've said already, but God, I hate going there. I call it the Hills Have Eyes house because it's settled between two large hills and far, far away. The hills look like eyes and the house looks like its mouth. That and the way the place looks. It looks like something out of the movie, The Hills Have Eyes. There's butchering equipment everywhere, bloody knives and cleavers and chains and hooks. They've got cows too, but I think they keep the meat for themselves. The smell is just atrocious. It always smells like death. To be honest, it wouldn't shock me if these guys committed murder out there and only butchered cows when they did to make excuses for the stench of death. Every single time I go there, something happens. I've been out there six times to deliver parcels, so I will recount each incident. The first time was around three months after I started delivering. I did as I was told, wrapped the mail in a rubber band and headed out to the house. Takes a good three or four minutes. It's around a bend and then that's when you see the two other hills that the house sits between. The main house has a fence around it with a gate, but the whole property has an outer fence with no gate that I go through. Once you're up against the gate, the whole place looks a lot smaller than it is because it's full of junk. All the butchering stuff, random metal sculptures, a bunch of worn out furniture, garbage, a few cow skulls here and there, and then the house itself. The house is just a small trailer that's been cemented onto the ground, so it's no longer mobile. A makeshift ramp slash porch that sits against the door and leads to the gate. This is where the basket for packages is. All around this gated area are coops and other fenced areas for the animals. It's smelly and weird and creepy around there. I just tossed the box and mail into the basket and turned to leave. I didn't want to stay at all. When I got to my car, I looked in my rear view mirror and saw a man standing behind my car. But when I poked my head out to ask him to move, there was no one there. Of course, I didn't want to stay another second. The second incident was closer to the evening. It was another super heavy day and I did not want to go out there. As I was approaching, 
I saw someone standing at the window of the house. I assumed it was one of them trying to see who was coming. I have car magnets on my car that all say USPS on them, so people know who I am. And I figured he'd seen them and be more at ease knowing a package was coming and not some random weirdo. But as I approached, the figure in the window distorted and eventually vanished entirely. I did not want to get out of the car. I just wanted to stay there and toss the parcel and mail out the window. After working up the courage, I sped from the car to the basket. And as I went to leave, I was getting right to my car when I heard this loud, raucous laughter. It sounded like it was right next to my car, like someone was standing beside me. I prayed I wouldn't have to return in a while. Two months later, I had to go back with four big boxes for them. This time it was a pretty light day. I was breezing through delivering packages very quickly, so I was happy about that. They're about in the middle of the route, so they're like a halfway point for me. I went to the house and was greeted by a large bull in the yard. I'm not usually nervous around animals, but a bull isn't something you wanna mess around with. He was standing just a few feet from the fence with the basket. So I just patiently waited to see if he would move. I didn't wanna honk, lest the angry beast who lived in there happened to be home and come out and yell at me or something. I didn't wanna shoo him because honestly, I didn't think it would work. All of a sudden, this bull goes crazy, freaks the hell out, thrashing about as if someone were riding him and came dangerously close to my car before running off into the area where the fences were. Then a whole chorus of moos erupted from that area and it was just a cacophony of noise. I grabbed the boxes, got them to the fence as fast as I could, as I didn't know what spooked the bull and I didn't care. I just wanted to leave. I didn't see anything this time, but I was afraid the bull would be coming back and tearing up my car or even goring me in the process. The fourth incident is honestly not the worst, but unsettling nonetheless. I had never had a package so small that it fit in the box for them. Honestly, I almost said screw it and shoved it in the mailbox. I should have, but I didn't want them to call and complain. They hadn't on me thus far and I wanted to keep it that way. So I reluctantly headed to the house with the package in their mail. When I got there, a single dead chicken was hanging from the awning above the porch. Weird, but honestly not surprising. Not as surprising as the giant dressed cow hanging from the pole on the other side of the yard. I didn't notice that until I was putting the package in the basket. It was obscured by a tree when driving up the place. And as I'm walking back to the car, the chicken and the cow both suddenly start to swing. It's not windy. And even if it was, one of these things is a cow. I don't think a light breeze is gonna push it. They're swinging back and forth, almost in tandem. And I just went nope and left. I wasn't gonna stay for the rest of the show. The fifth time was two weeks ago. It had been quite a while since I went out there and I had vainly hoped that I wouldn't have to go back for long, but oh well. The holidays are starting. Everyone is getting stuff. I get out there with three boxes and for the first time I see a living, breathing person in the window. Jim told me one of the brothers was in a wheelchair. This was that brother. He was bald with a weird tribal tattoo across where I believe his hairline used to be. 
he was sitting in the window staring at me. I waved out of courtesy, and of course he didn't wave back. First time either of us had ever laid eyes on one another, but I didn't know what I expected him to do. Smile back and wave? When I know damn well these guys are dicks. I noticed, as I put the parcel in the basket, that he wasn't looking at me, but something behind me. I looked and saw someone walk behind one of the chicken coops. I looked back at the brother in the window, and he gave me a grumpy sort of, you saw that right, kind of look, and nodded towards the coop. I just slowly nodded and went back to the car. He watched me back out, and as I was turning back onto the road, I saw him leave the window and draw the curtain closed. The last time was yesterday. I was having a typical holiday season Monday, very heavy day with lots of mail and lots of parcels. And of course, they had to have a whopping five parcels. I get out there about 4pm, and I'm already exhausted, halfway done, knowing that I'm not going to finish until around 7. It takes a good 45 minutes to get back to the post office, and another 10 to unload and finish my day. I know I won't finish the route until about 6, so I'm trying to hurry, and getting out to this place doesn't help making it in good time. So I get out there, get out, put some of the boxes in the basket, and the others below the gate to leave. Suddenly, I feel a hard tug on my shirt that pulls me backwards, and I fall on my ass in the dirt. I hit my head on the edge of the trailer and swear to myself before getting up. I thought maybe I had my shirt caught on something, but as I get further away I feel another hard tug and fall back again. This time I know I didn't catch on anything because I was about two feet from the fence on my left and there was nothing on my right and nothing directly behind me. I scramble up and try to run as I pull hard and I feel another tug and I hear that god awful laugh again. I didn't look back, I left. I still talk to Jim every now and then. When I tell him about these incidents, he goes, oh yeah, that place is haunted. More so than some of the others, I think. In Jim's opinion, the whole route is damned. There are, as I said, other places out there where weird stuff happens, but these are the ones I find the freakiest. After yesterday's little incident at the Hills Have Eyes house, I felt like I wanted to share these stories with someone other than my husband. Either way, I'm in a contract now. So if this is the best of the last seven months, I'm sure I'll have way more stories over the next 10 years to come. I studied abroad in Oxfordshire, England in 2012 and lived in an abbey that was built in 1215. On this day, it was a beautiful sunny day. And for some reason, I was the only one in the abbey. It was a small group of us studying here, maybe 40 to 45 altogether. I was in the library sitting on a couch located under a window that was across the room from a wall with a fireplace. The door in the library to the left of the fireplace, and I was reading a book for class when suddenly, over the top of my book in my peripheral, I saw a man walk into the room with me. He walked by the fireplace and was continuing into the room. He was a tall man, and what I noticed immediately was that he was wearing a full suit. 
My first thought was that it was very early morning or late afternoon, and I wondered who the heck is wearing a suit right now. I looked up for my book to acknowledge him, and no one was there. I was completely alone in the room. I got goosebumps, and my heart beat harder in my chest. But I wasn't terrified or anything. I just kind of went, okay, and kept reading my book. I had forgotten about it until a few nights later, when a friend of mine told me the receptionist had been telling her ghost stories about the Abbey. One of the stories had been that when it was quiet in the library, students reported seeing a butler walking around. A butler. I flushed bright red when she told me, and I immediately thought of the man in the suit. I went back to the library a few more times on my own when I studied there, but I never saw him again. This happened to my uncle's wife. I will narrate it how she did to me and my sisters. We're from the northern state of Mexico, Nuevo Leon, from a small town south of Monterrey, around El Cierro de la Silla. If you've never heard of it, do Google it, it's beautiful. Stories about people seeing witches and lechuzas around the town are very common, but my aunt's story really pulls a chill down my spine. The story goes like this. I lived in a small home up in the hills. I shared a room with my sister, our windows facing the main street. It was big, and it had rails on the window. One night, me and my sister were in bed. She was asleep, and I was awake, lying on my bed, looking outside my window, since my bed was against the wall and right underneath the window. I liked opening the window and looking up at the sky. I remembered being around 3am, when I decided that I had to get some rest. I stood up just to close my window, and that's when I saw her, the witch, flying right in front of my house. She saw me, and we made eye contact, and I immediately shut my window and got under my covers and started praying. I eventually fell asleep, and awoke to the fresh air hitting my face as I opened my eyes, and I see my head sticking out the window. I scream as loud as I could, and my sister woke up to help me. I'd never been afraid like I had been at that moment in all my life, as I realized that it was only her power that caused me to look out my window like that. If it wasn't for the rails, she would have had me. My aunt told us that her grandma would tell that the witches would take kids out their windows at night, and she never believed her until it happened to her. She believed the witch wanted revenge because my aunt made eye contact with her. The crazy part is that until this day, she sometimes wakes up with random bruises or hickey marks on her skin. Well, that's her story. My stepfather is a truck driver. Anyone who's familiar with the 401 highway in Ontario knows how crap it can be in winter. He was heading to Ottawa after a pickup in Toronto, and just before Kingston, another truck had jackknifed about 10 minutes past Kingston. When the truck jackknifed, it slid into the barrier and rolled. The traffic was moving, but pretty heavy. The cars behind the truck didn't have time to stop, 
and 14 or 15 vans and pickups ran into the initial crash at speed. My stepfather was a few vehicles behind, but saw the initial crash and hit his air brakes for all he was worth. Luckily, he had the length to get it to stop, and his load was heavy, but not enough force in order to keep the truck rolling. About 10 to 15 minutes go by. First responders run the scene inspecting the crash and working out how to start getting to the victim still trapped. My stepfather has always stressed one specific detail about vehicle safety in the event of a situation such as this. Stay in the car unless there is immediate danger in there with you, or you can see someone in urgent need. Wait for the first responder to come to you, unless you're injured and have a clear path away from the road. So he's idling his truck about 10 meters back from the crash itself, and he sees a woman whose car is about midway in the pileup, slowly open the door and kind of stagger out her mangled car. She looks disoriented, and is clearly moving like she's confused and doesn't know what's happening. He has an oh crap moment and opens the door about to run and get her. She's staggering towards the median, not the shoulder, and he's worried about how she's gonna wander into the oncoming other side of the highway. As she's stepping out onto the running boards, he hears an air horn pulled repeatedly. He jumps back in and pulls his door closed behind him, as another transport comes straight onto the wreck. The guy hit more than black ice, and the weight of his load and momentum carried the truck forward toward the median. The woman had made it to a point where she was between the truck and the median. My stepfather watched a woman, who he'd been about to run out to and pull from the road, get cut in half. The following took place over the summer of 2016 at Wentworth Military Academy and College in Lexington, Missouri. I attended the school for their Camp LEAD program, a three to five week long summer camp designed to introduce cadets to a military style structure. When I arrived at the campus, one of the older cadets gave me a tour of the place, so I would know where everything was. The first building he showed me was Hickman Hall, the oldest building on the campus and rumored to be the most haunted. He showed me one of the windows on the building. There was a face drawn in dust. However, the interesting part about it is that the face is drawn in between the planes of glass. The school is located in the middle of the US, also known as Tornado Alley. Thus, windows need to be double or triple thick to ensure they don't break. The face showed up out of the blue around the turn of the millennium, and no one knows who drew it. Hickman Hall is home to numerous rumors and haunted stories. For example, in 1995, one night around 3 a.m., every single door in the second floor flew open simultaneously. The doors inside are heavy-weighted doors that are designed to be hard to throw open. Another time, a cadet saw a floating Civil War-era general walking around and going into the closed rooms. The thought behind this is because the school is built on the grounds of the Battle of Lexington, a battle during the Civil War. Other times, cadets heard a particular door slam to then discover that it had been locked and hadn't opened in years. After a point, the cadets refused to live in the building and the school built new barracks. They locked the door to Hickman Hall 
and no one has been in or out for 15 years. I also had my own spiritual experience at the camp. One night, I was walking back to my room after I finished running on the track with my roommate and one other cadet. As we were walking about 100 yards away from Hickman Hall, we looked at the face to see a very bright white light emanating from that room. Our first obvious thought was that it was simply a street light shining through the building from the other side as all the blinds and doors were open in the building. However, upon further investigation, we determined that could not have been it for two reasons. First was that the street lamps around the building were of a yellow nature, while this light was bright white. Second and the more prominent reason was that the light stayed in the middle of the room, even when we walked around to different angles. The building had no power, as why would it need to? And there were no lights that hung in the very center of the room. The other cadet that was with us had been attending the school for three years, so he knew the place inside and out. He never heard nor saw anything like that before, and we didn't see anything like that for the rest of camp. I have no idea what this light was, so I'm interested to hear what you guys think. Another building I was shown on my tour was the academic building. He told us a lot of rumors about the deaths related to that building, but none of them were confirmed except for one around 1986. A cadet became very depressed and tragically ended his life in the basement of the building. He used a noose on one of the pipes in the ceiling and at his feet, at his boots, were his journal. The journal was filled with demonic drawings, poems and the like. Instead of filling the room up with concrete, the school simply locked the door and put the words, the dark room on the door. For years, cadets could hear whispers coming from the basement. And one day the imprint of a hand was found embedded in the wall on the stairs heading up. Now, some punk cadet could have done that in the night to mess with people. So I can't say 100% that it was supernatural in origin. At the end of our tour, my first roommate, of which I had two, came running out to say, hey, you won't believe what Luke just did. Shortly after Luke came running up, I explained to them why doing something like that is a bad idea. After a while, we all went inside and went into Luke's room. After a few minutes, I left, and it was just Luke and Ashton, his roommate in the room. The two of them were sitting up on their bunks and were talking about what just happened. When suddenly Ashton's chair moved a solid two and a half feet and his backpack, which was hanging on the back of the chair, fell to the floor. They came running out, screaming bloody murder. We went back to investigate and found all the windows and doors closed along with the air conditioning being off when the chair moved. There was no way the wind moved that chair. It was also a reasonably heavy backpack. I can't recall how it came to happen, but I ended up looking under Luke's desk. Drawn on the underside of his desk drawer in permanent marker was a perfectly detailed Ouija board. Luke and Ashton started freaking out. We had the drawings removed as the Cader had a marker remover. For the rest of the night, they were on edge and freaked out. One of the other cadets asked me if he could walk around with my Bible, to which I gladly obliged. A week later, I moved down to the other end of the hall in the room of my second roommate, the one who was with me when I first saw the aforementioned light. One night, two older cadets decided to use a Ouija board they drew on the lid of a tub container. At first, nothing happened, 
so after half hour they put it away and went to sleep. At three in the morning they woke up to two very loud, very distinct knocks on their door. At first, they thought it was just night watch knocking. As it's a military camp, they have a member of the Kado walk up and down the halls around two in the morning with red lens lights. They simply walk up to the door and shine the light through the window in the door to make sure both cadets are still in bed, to make sure no cadets sneak out. As earlier in camp, three cadets snuck out and got extremely drunk and ended up being arrested. The red lens is to protect the eyes of the cadet and just a simple check. After a few seconds, the cadets realized the knocks did not come from the door to the hallway, but rather from their bathroom. The bathroom had no window nor any access to the outside aside from the door to the rest of the room. They were petrified as they opened up the door to find no one inside the bathroom and their door to the hallway was locked. The first thought was that it was a mouse. However, mice don't make two distinct loud knocks on doors. These are just a few of the bizarre experiences I have found during my time at Wentworth Military Academy in college. Unfortunately, the school has since closed due to lack of funding and I am no longer able to visit the campus. I'm a military officer and have seen my fair share of crazy. Back in 2010, when I was still a sergeant, I was out on a training mission with my unit. We had all the gear packed up since we were going to stay in the wild for a few nights. We go deep into a forest out in nowhere, Minnesota. The nearest house must have been at least a two hour drive away and there was no signal. We set up camp and start to make ready for the first exercise. When we are all done with the exercise, we have to make dinner, which is nothing to say hooray about. It was just some MRI. God, I hate that food. As we ate our food, we head off to bed so that we could get up at four in the morning. Five people were pointed out to guard in switch. I had the guard at two in the morning. All the other guards were reporting strange noises from the woods. They said it sounded like someone talking to each other and walking around. We are all a bit scared, even though we had our guns. An hour into my guard switch, I hear the voice. I point my gun into the area of the sound. I don't dare say anything. So I slowly back up to wake up the others. As I got up the staff sergeant, five shots fire. Needless to say, everyone is awake now. People are scrambling for their guns. In a matter of minutes, everyone is ready and a hunt begins. We are all ordered to go out and capture whoever shot at us. After searching most of the night, we were going to call it at that. But one of the specialists had found an old and rundown looking house in the forest. We go and search the house. Six soldiers go in and search while 20 others are guarding all exits. We found no one inside, but it looked to be a meth lab. So what I think of this story, I think it was some crackheads that were cooking meth there and they thought for some random reason that we were campers. And when they saw soldiers, they ran for it. Norwich is an old medieval city in England and has lots of beautiful and interesting old places to visit. 
One of its most famous buildings is the towering Norwich Cathedral, opposite Tomland, which sits down by the river Wensum. Anyhow, busy exploring my new city one Saturday, I visited the cathedral, and after wandering the building, decided to explore the cathedral close. It was late, a sunny afternoon in October, with lots of autumn leaves on the ground, and I was really enjoying my walk when I stumbled upon a cobbled alley at the end of some houses, and decided to see where it led. The floor and walls were cobbled, and the walls maybe 10 foot high, so I couldn't see over them. But I could hear people in the gardens on the other side talking and children playing. Although I was on my own in the alleyway, I didn't feel alone. But as I began to walk on, the alley began to twist and turn, and although the sky was blue overhead, and the sun was still out, I began to feel increasingly uneasy. I could no longer hear voices coming from the other side of the walls, and when I thought about it, realized that in fact, I couldn't hear anything. No birds, no traffic, not even wind, and yet the cathedral is in the middle of a reasonably sized city. I began to feel nervous, and my scalp started to prick. And so I began to up my pace, telling myself that I'd been walking a while, and that the alleyway couldn't go on forever. But as I turned each blind bend, hoping to see the end of what was beginning to feel like a maze, I was only met with another stretch of alleyway. I began to jog, and although I hadn't seen anyone since entering the alleyway, and couldn't hear any footsteps on the cobbles behind me, I had the growing sensation that someone or something bad was following me close behind, and that the walls were pressing on. I started having difficulty breathing and realized I was also beginning to feel dizzy. I didn't want to pass out alone in this alleyway, and so decided to run. After what seemed like forever, I turned another corner and suddenly sprinted out onto a perfectly normal looking street down by the river, and the city sounds returned. I realized I was shaking, my hand and forehead dripping with sweat, and didn't have a clue where I was. I sat down on a wall and had a cigarette, and pulled myself together, and then stopped to pass by and ask for directions back to the market square in the middle of town from where I could find my own way back to campus. It didn't take long to walk back to the market square, but when I checked my watch, it turned out that I had been in the alleyway for nearly an hour. It didn't make any sense, as I couldn't have walked that far, but I didn't want to know too much about it, and told myself that maybe it was all the twists and turns the alley had, and that added to the time. At class on Monday, I was telling a few people about the alleyway in the cathedral grounds, and how it had suddenly turned really spooky, when one of the mature students on our course, who had lived in Norwich for years, and knew a lot about its history overheard me. She asked me if the alley was an old cobbled one with high walls, that led off the cathedral close, and I said yes. She took me aside and quietly explained to me, that she wasn't surprised I'd felt what I did, because that was the alleyway they dragged people accused of witchcraft along, before burning them at the stake, as Norwich has a huge history of witches. But the kicker to this story, is that though I lived in Norwich for a number of years and often visited the cathedral, I never walked that alleyway again because of what happened, until that afternoon one day, 
when a friend from overseas was visiting. I took her down to the cathedral, and while there told her about the alleyway and what I'd experienced. She insisted that we walk it, and when I stalled and started to make excuses, promised me that if things started to go bad, we would just turn back, and she would stay with me at all times. Reluctantly, I agreed. The alley was just how I remembered it, at first. Dry cobbled floor and high cobbled walls backing onto people's gardens. But after ten minutes at most, and only a handful of turns, suddenly we found ourselves back onto the street. It didn't make any sense to me back then, and it still doesn't to this day. And I don't go near the witch's walk anymore. This guy was a truck driver down in Australia, driving those huge land trains across the long, long outback roads. These are seriously lengthy journeys, and back then, every driver who wanted to make the delivery on time went past their max hours. As you might imagine, you get very tired, and it was common to hear drivers talk of hallucinations. So this guy is in the middle of his trip, driving along the dark, empty road, when he sees something big move onto the road. An elephant. Big grey beast, giant ears in a trunk. In the middle of the Australian outback, right where he's heading at speed. Of course, he's feeling pretty awake now, and swerves out to avoid hitting this thing. Manages to miss it, but loses control of the vehicle and comes off the road. Mr. Trucker gets out unscratched, and looks back. Nothing on the road. Crikey, he thinks to himself. Bloody hallucination. He checks his vehicle to make sure it's all okay, losing lots of time before getting back in and getting to his destination slightly late. He unloads his stuff, loads up with another delivery, and goes back the way he came. So here's Mr. Trucker driving down the same road again, still tired, making his way through the outback, when he sees it again. Not this again, he thinks. He's not losing any more time, he says. So he shuffles in his seat to keep his foot on the gas, and he plows straight into a five-ton elephant, kills the elephant, totals the truck, and does not make it home in time for neighbors. Turns out the elephant had escaped from a circus that was traveling around at the time. Since then, my dad made sure, no matter how ridiculous something seemed, he, as he is a truck driver, always swerved. Early into college, I took a class that required a team project. I didn't know anyone in the class or the area, so I was paired by the professor with a guy called Frank. Frank seemed quiet and mellow, like me, so I thought it would go smoothly. Before leaving class, we exchanged numbers and swapped ideas for the paper we had to write together. The project itself ran smoothly. We never got together outside of class to work on it, but completed it with Google Docs and occasional texts and got a high grade. I thought that would be the end of our acquaintanceship, but I was wrong. He asked me out over text, and I politely told him I was flattered but not interested. Apparently, that wasn't a good enough hint because he kept texting me. He would ask me out on dates or to come over to my dorm if I would tell him which one it was. At this point, I was creeped out and annoyed, so I stopped answering him. The next few days he texted me. Frank would compliment my outfit that day, 
when I hadn't seen him the whole day, but apparently he had seen me. I felt like I was being watched everywhere on campus. He said, "That green color looks good on you. Your hair's pretty today." A few more weeks passed, and he started to get angry. He would text me asking me where I was and why I didn't show up for a date. Things I never agreed to. I still hadn't texted him back this whole time. He'd say things like, "Looking forward to pizza with you tonight. Catch you at the movies at seven. I definitely should have blocked him by then. He followed me on my Instagram at the time, and I'd posted a picture of my cat, who had unexpectedly passed away, along with a caption of talking about how much I missed him. He liked the photo, then sent me a two-word text: "Meow meow." I finally blocked Frank on everything, phone, social media, the whole thing. He would friend request me once from what must have been a second account, but I quickly blocked it too. Over the next years of college, I would occasionally see him on campus. He'd keep his head down around me, but he always made me nervous after that. I'd rather not meet him again. This happened in Manitou Springs. My wife and I at the time had a long commute between work and our home. We drove to the city in the daytime, came to our apartment in the evening. We had our youngest daughter at the time, and were unloading some groceries. My wife saw from the corner of her eye a figure approaching. It was bizarre for her to get defensive, since many tourists walked the roads we lived on, Route and Avenue. She took our daughter inside right away, fearing something amiss. She came back out to help me, and told me she felt weak all of a sudden, and started pointing at this lady walking up the hill. She noticed the person did not look like someone she wanted to be in the presence of, and fled inside immediately after seeing what they looked like. I, however, stayed, not knowing what I could make eye contact with. She looked homeless, which was common. As a lot of people come to Colorado for the pot craze, this was different. She had a burlapped sack, cut in sections, that almost had a weird aura, almost a memorization of confusion. Her face was scarred and deformed. She looked like she had a humpback, but possibly could have been carrying supplies. I made eye contact for the briefest moment, almost feeling an energy pushing me away. She had a staff too, and was walking very slow. I got chills, turned to grab the last of the bags, and as soon as I did, she was gone. I knew she would be there, and my curiosity struck me to see what this entity was. But she vanished, poofed into nowhere, one-way street with a river next to the road. I later went out to enjoy a cigarette that very night. It was two or three in the morning, very late, super dark, and no lights on the street. It was a hill, so I looked up the road and noticed, up in the pass in the faint distance, I could see colors changing, almost like a flame burning, but not the same colors. It was more purple, blue, and black. I still do not know to this day what this thing was. If it was a trick, it was well played, but the street had a very dark history. No doubt in my mind. This thing could have been a witch or demon of some sort. I am a former U.S. Marine. During a field training event, 
we were doing night live fire drills. I was cresting a small berm. And when I did, there was a loud mechanical whirring of the pop up targets coming up. So I went through the metal drills of hitting the ground in a relatively safe manner to take a shot at the pop up target. I took another step and put my hand out right hand on rifle, left hand out slightly from my body. And I lost all balance. I hit the ground and heard crack thump. Nothing unusual about that on a firing range, followed up by ceasefire man down. I look around at a bunch of stuff standing over me asking if I was okay. I was fine. Why would they ask? I take off my helmet and see that a guy in my fire team has fired me mistaking me for a pop up. The round glanced off my helmet and tore a hole in it. I took no damage but due to a faulty helmet, I had to stay behind on all further runs. As I was doing something near my tent, I heard a voice say, that was close. Next time you should stay behind Parker. I laugh and say, yeah, I turned to where I heard the voice. And there was no one there. I searched the area there was no one around. This freaked me out and would have been enough to keep me on edge. But I brushed it off as my mind playing tricks on me. Fine, cool, whatever. Six months later, and we're balls deep in house clearing bullshit in a row. I hear that very same voice. Remember to stay behind Parker. Right before we enter the house. I take a look behind me. And sure enough, the guy was right behind me. I take a step to the side acting like I was doing something and he instinctively moved forward. I duck him behind him. Unfortunately, he didn't make it through the house. To this day, I blame myself for his passing. I never stopped thinking about what may have been. I know if I'd have gone in first, I wouldn't be writing this if I'd have been in his place. I know it's not right to blame myself, but I do. Maybe it is right. All I know now is whenever I hear that voice saying remember, don't take lead or something like that. I listen. I've heard it twice since that day. Hate me if you like. I hate myself enough for listening to that voice already. My boyfriend was in the army before I met him. This is by far the creepiest story he shared with me. He lived in a two story townhouse on base housing in Fort Hood for about six months. Tenants always came and went because of deployment. Weird stuff would happen both at night and during the day, mainly thuds in his bedroom on the second floor and shuffling. He felt uneasy being in his room. He also always slept in the living room couch on the first floor. On the weekends, he would be up late playing Xbox, being the achievement hunter he is, and due to insomnia, wouldn't fall asleep until 5am. One night he was up late on his Xbox dashboard, sitting on the sofa chair smoking a cigarette. His connect was plugged in. As many of you know, there's a screen on the bottom right corner that shows an infrared version of what the connect camera can see. This lets you know that it is detecting. It's really sensitive. And although it is sometimes frustrating to use surprisingly accurate. 
This is when the hair behind his neck stood up. He noticed the infrared screen. Standing to the right of him, alongside him, was a solid female figure. He wanted to add that he has never used his connect after this, even after moving back home to Chicago. I can attest to that. I attended a small liberal arts university with a student population of 3,600. However, during the summer, this population obviously goes down considerably and the campus is mostly empty. You'll occasionally see someone who works there or a student working there during the summer, but for the most part, it's pretty deserted. The summer between my junior and senior year, I worked on campus for the teams that host and run any conferences and events that take place. The school will rent out dorms and event space for groups and students are in charge of cleaning, organizing and managing these groups for their stay. A sort of hospitality team. As part of this, we would have someone at the front desk of the main university building and any dorms which were occupied from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. to field any questions or to otherwise help as needed. We each were required to work a certain number of shifts each week. And one of the shifts I would signed up for was 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. at the main university building. Absolutely nothing happened that night. I spent the evening catching up on the daily show. Rough job, I know. Nobody came by the center, nobody called, and we were trusted with the keys to the building. And whoever had the last shift of that evening had to lock up. As I stood outside locking the door, I heard someone ask behind me, what time is it? Having locked the door, I turned around, looked at my cell phone and replied, it's 11.01. The guy was around my age. I knew he wasn't a student. It was a small enough school where even if you don't know everyone, you generally recognized faces and you definitely knew the handful of students working there over the summer. I started to walk across campus to the dorm where they housed all the summer student workers but I only got about 10 feet before I knew something was wrong. I stopped and turned around and saw the guy following behind me and he stopped as well. I figured he could just be heading the same way so I continued walking and we played this weird game of red light green light about twice more for another 50 feet. It was at that moment I realized this was very, very wrong and he was following me. Can I help you? I asked, praying perhaps he was just lost. I'm locked out my place tonight, he replied. Not sure what to respond to that, I said. Sorry to hear that. I hope you get back in. If this isn't a classic case of girls being conditioned to be polite and non-aggressive, even in a case where they shouldn't be expected to be, then I don't know what is. I had no idea what to do, so I carried on walking. My mind was racing. I turned to look at him a few times and even directly stopped and looked at him once to let him know that I saw him. I was onto him. I felt so foolish I didn't know whether to scream or run or call someone on my phone. All of these looking back would have been much better options than just continue to walk with him following me. But it's like my brain wasn't working. I was panicking. I don't have a purse or anything, so I don't think he was trying to rob me. Thankfully, I passed by a dorm that had occupants in it and my friend Mike, 
who was manning the front desk there the night, had decided to step out and smoke a cigarette. I had never been so glad to see someone smoking a cancer stick. Mike, hi. I started towards him. He looked over, saw me, saw the guy following me, and somehow immediately knew something was wrong. I don't know whether it was panic on my face or the fact that the guy was acting so shady, but I'm glad he spotted it. I didn't even have to say anything. He just looked at me and said, oh, I'm done here. Let's head back together. Of course, as soon as he saw Mike, my follower peeled off. I told Mike what happened. And as we walked back, he kept an eye out for him, but he was nowhere to be found. I thought it was the end of it. However, as we walked across the campus, we saw another summer worker, Julie, walking really fast looking behind her. Sure enough, there was creepy McCreepy person. He had moved on quickly. Julie, we yelled. As soon as he saw us, her face crumpled into the most relieved look I'd ever seen. The creeper ran away and we all walked back to the dorm together. As soon as we were inside, we were completely freaking out and getting on our phone to call campus police. When we heard the door of the dorm violently jiggling, luckily you need an access card to get inside, but whoever was out there was trying awfully hard to get in. Campus police never found him. I thank God for Mike's nicotine addiction and I don't take any more late night shifts. I continued to watch the late show though. Yesterday, I walked into a witch store with my friend. She was genuinely curious and practiced witchcraft. I didn't mind at all. I found it interesting to say the least. As she was looking for candles, I was exploring the store. The walls were painted black with only lights dimly lit in the store. There was a section in the back where dead animals were encased in glass jars being sold. It sent chills up my spine and gave me goosebumps. About five minutes later, I noticed that my body felt cold. It was a warm, sunny day in the city. Why was I freezing? And then it felt as if something slipped into my body. It was subtle. And after a few thoughts of wandering and confusion, I forgot all about it. A few hours later at home, I felt pretty tired. It was probably just exhaustion because it was a fun day walking around the city. However, I for some reason wanted to sleep early. It was 6 p.m. I could tell something was off, but I pushed it aside and tried to get back to sleep. I somehow couldn't. I kept tossing and turning. Suddenly I was starving. I got out of bed and asked my mum if there was anything to eat. I ate, but couldn't chew normally. Everything seemed out of place. When I walked around, everything was in slow motion. I felt dizzy and fell to my knees. I quickly picked myself up and rushed back into bed. A few minutes later, I got up again, but this time the feeling I had was like the urge to vomit, but nothing came out. After many attempts, I had pain in my lower abdomen. It didn't feel like period cramps. It was so painful that I passed out. The next thing I knew, I awoke to see a needle in my arm connected to a tube leading to an IV. I was in the hospital. The doctor said I was fine. Nothing was wrong with my body. I also do feel fine. Right now, I'm currently sharing this and don't feel different or sick. Was there an evil spirit in that witch store that entered my body? If there was, I hope it doesn't choose to return.
This past year was my senior year of college, and I was thrilled to be living with an alumni of my sorority who I was very close with, Abby. We weren't actually supposed to be living in the apartment we ended up in. We were originally going to be living in a townhouse with two other girls, but they started so much drama a month before we were supposed to move in that we had to contact our landlord to find a different place with their moving company to live. Thankfully, we found a two bedroom, one bathroom basement apartment in a quiet area off campus. The first month was fine and without incident, but as the days went by, some strange things began to happen in the apartment. One morning, Abby woke up to a kitchen cabinet open. She wasn't that concerned about it and figured that I had just forgotten to shut it the night before. The next morning, a different cabinet was open and once again, she shrugged it off. However, I went home one weekend and she woke up to find every cabinet in the kitchen wide open and the sink running. Needless to say, Abby was scared and spent the night at her boyfriend's. Two weeks later, we were watching TV and heard the bathroom door close. I tried to calm Abby down by saying that the fan we kept in the bathroom blew it closed. However, when we went to bed, we thought we could hear someone walking around in our living room. There's no way someone broke into our apartment and hid the whole day only to come out at night and mess with us. I was home the whole day and Abby was home from 11 in the morning. That incident took place shortly before Christmas break and all was calm in the apartment until February. Abby had gone home for the weekend and I was home alone, relaxing on the couch and doing homework. It was pretty late at night, so I turned on the TV for background noise and curled up on the couch to sleep. I woke up at 2.30 in the morning to see Abby walking through the front door, smiling but not saying anything. I blinked, still groggy from sleep, and asked if she was okay. She just looked at me and proceeded to take off her shoes and walk into the kitchen. Something about her didn't seem right. Like this girl looked like Abby and walked like Abby, but it wasn't her. I asked her again if she was okay because it was so early in the morning for her to be coming home. Abby looked at me and smiled and began washing something in the sink. Something inside me felt a profound sense of dread, like I was in danger and needed to get away. As quickly as possible, I went to my room and locked my door. My roommate followed me because I heard someone tapping their fingers against the door. Once, twice, three times, four times, five times, it wouldn't stop. I didn't say another word because it felt like if I did acknowledge her, it gave her more strength. I know that doesn't make much sense, but that was my instinct. I curled up beneath my blankets and stared at my bedroom door, almost waiting for her to kick it in. My eyes felt heavy and the tapping was almost like a metronome enticing me to sleep. As I drifted back to sleep, the taps seemed to slow down to a trickle. The morning after I was exhausted, it felt like I had taken 20 Advil PM to help me sleep. But I remember everything that had happened. Cautiously, I left my room and saw Abby's bed had not been disturbed or slept in. I went to the living room and her shoes and purse weren't there. A cold feeling crept into my spine as I sent her a text asking if she'd come home that night. She said no, she hadn't and wouldn't be coming home for another two days. But then I checked the sink 
and the bowl Abby had been washing had been cleaned and put away. I firmly believe I was not dreaming or hallucinating. And I know this wasn't some elaborate prank by Abby because she could never do anything like that. I firmly believe something took her shape that night and its intentions weren't good. There were a few other experiences in their apartment, but nothing so drastic as what I went through that night. Back when I was in boot camp, I was sent to an island called Pulau Tekong, off the coast of Singapore. This island's entire population is made up of only military personnel or afflicted people, and there were no animals allowed into the camp and security is posted 24 seven. To even get there, we had to take a ferry for 10 minutes with our bags checked before we could head on the ferry and checked again after we reached the company line. I remember that this night was particularly cooling and around 10 p.m. it started to rain. My platoon was on the fifth floor of the building and sometime around 3 a.m. I was jolted awake. There was an unmistakable sound of cats meowing on the floor. At first I thought I was dreaming, but they started to get louder. I sleep facing the window of our bunk, but there was a thick mist outside even though it was raining. My vision into the hallway was severely limited, and I was shocked by this and look around the bunk to see three other section mates awake as well. We look at each other and started asking what was happening in our hall. In the midst of talking, there was a loud screech that pierced the meowing cats, almost as if someone dragged their nails across a chalkboard. Through the thick mist, a few figures ran past my bunk, too blurry to actually make out what they were, due to the screech. The entire platoon woke up and ran into the hall, where the mist seemed to quickly retreat. The next morning, we looked in the hallway and there were paw prints in our bathroom, even on the ceiling. The second story happened after I got posted to the unit after completing boot camp. Back in 2017, there was a shooting competition between Asian countries and Singapore was playing host. My camp was where the ammunition and pistols came from. And I was the duty vehicular man during one of the weeks. I was told that I was needed at the ammo point at 2 to 4am every morning, along with the duty clerk for the day to clear the personnel that were coming to collect ammo. The ammo point is located on a hill about four clicks away from headquarters. This particular morning, it was around 1230. And after getting confirmation that an escort into the ammo point was not required, I started the vehicle and began making the drive back to HQ with the clerk beside me. You know how motion lights work. When you walk into a room, they'll light up. And after a while, if you leave, they'll turn off. Well, the road back to HQ was littered with street lamps with motion sensor lights. As I started making my way down the hill with nothing but foliage on both sides, the lights I passed started going one by one with a deafening sound. It immediately started to get cold, which is something that never happens in Singapore due to the humidity. I looked at the clerk and told him something felt off and that I was getting goosebumps. A primal sense of fear took over me 
as I realized that something might be trying to get us. I zoomed down the hill with the lights going off behind us one by one, and it seemed to be getting faster, almost as if we were being chased. We did make it back to HQ, and it was here that we realized that it wasn't cold like how it was back then. I asked a warrant officer, who had been posted there about the general area of the ammo point, and he told me that the music and drama company's building, which is about 500 meters away from the ammo point, is haunted, and because of what I went through, they had to get a religious leader to come and bless the building again. Recently, I had a terrible nightmare triggered by the ghost at my job, and it took me back to an event that happened in Snyder County, Pennsylvania, back between 2010 and 2015. I was between the ages of 13 to 18. Those five years were an absolute hell and tore my family apart. Many things happened at this house, ranging from violent enough to push my dad down the stairs to simple cold spots. However, the story I'm gonna share is the night that stuck with me the most. In 2008, when the market crashed and people started losing their houses, my family was a part of it. I watched my parents struggle for a long time before finally giving up and moving closer to my school district, where we started renting the right side of a duplex. To give a bit of an image of the house, it consisted of three stories above the ground and a basement. The first floor had a closed off porch, a large divided living room, a very small kitchen, and a small closed off back porch. At the kitchen entrance was the food closet, and directly across from that was the door to the basement. Upstairs were three bedrooms and a full bathroom. Every room upstairs had a carpet in it, except for my parents' bedroom at the end of the hall. Yes, even the bathroom was carpeted. Through the room closet to the bathroom, my brother's room, was the door to the attic. The attic was a large room that we never used, and because it would open on its own accord, my brother pushed his dresser in front of it. At the other half of the house was an elderly lady and her daughter. The two fought almost every night, and after they moved out, they hired a man to fix up their side and sell it. Well, he invited my parents and I over one day to tell us what he had planned to work on. So he was really letting us know that it was going to be noisy for a while. He showed us a room in the basement that was painted all black with colors painted throughout it, as well as candles and a Ouija board at the center. He had thrown that stuff out before we could even see it though. Now that you have the layout of the house, let me begin the event that haunts me to this day. It was a clear night on Wednesday, about seven or 8 p.m. My parents were a part of pool league, so they were out that night. My brother was basically living with my cousin at the time too, so I was completely home alone with three dogs and what I strongly believe was a demon. I was sitting in my father's favorite chair. The chair faced the kitchen and I was a typical teenager texting on my phone and watching TV. When I heard what sounded like the dogs getting into the garbage out in the darker than usual kitchen. This was pretty common since our boxer Max liked to pull empty bottles from the trash if we didn't give them to him. He likes to take the lids off. 
he'd give the caps to our two chihuahuas to play with while he played with the bottle. I yelled for the dogs to get back into the living room and out of the trash. It didn't stop the sound of rustling trash bags, so I was about to get up and go out there. But I looked down and see Max laying in front of the TV, while Scrappy and Kokoa, the chihuahuas, were curled on my mum's chair that faced the stairs. Sure, this spooked me a little, but I was used to this kind of thing. It became common for things to be the ghost if it wasn't the dogs. I did my best to ignore the sound and continued watching TV. However, my attention was snapped away when the light in that half of the divided living room started to dim and brighten repeatedly and fast. The feeling of being watched heightened around this time too. But again, the being watched feeling was something I had gotten used to. I began texting my mum, asking how much longer they were going to be out. She told me it wouldn't be too much longer, but I knew it wouldn't be until way later in the night. I continued to do my best to ignore it, but then it started to sound like someone was walking around upstairs in my room and in the hallway. I was not about to go investigate on my own. As a huge fan of horror, I knew that this would be unwise. Once again, I texted my mum and this time told her that the ghost was acting up and that I was getting scared. Deciding that it was getting to be too much for me, I moved to the other half of the living room where the couch was to try and get away from whatever it was. I used to sleep on the couch, so it was already set up for me to hide under the covers. I called all three dogs with me as well as an attempt to keep us all safe. I really wish I could say that that was where the event ended and that my parents came home right then and there. Above the half of the living room I had moved into was my parents' bedroom. In their bedroom was a very heavy solid oak dresser and a just as heavy metal framed bed. I could hear what sounded like someone pushing around the dresser and bed. It sounded like someone was rearranging my parents' bedroom. At this point, I could no longer ignore everything that was happening in the house. It honestly was as if the house was coming to life. And it was at that point I called my mum, demanding she come home because something was very wrong and there was nothing I could do to make any of it stop. I think the whole, it sounds like someone is rearranging your bedroom thing made her think someone might have broken in, but there's no way someone could have broken in and got up the stairs without me seeing them. Even if they did find a way onto the roof and into the house, I don't think they'd be quiet enough to make it undetected with three dogs. Either way, I had no other option than to try and hide and ignore it all. What felt like an eternity passed before my parents got home, and by the time they did, everything had stopped. Once in the door, my dad went upstairs with my mum and I closed behind. We checked every room on the second floor, only to find no one there, and nothing had been changed or moved. Well, that was scary, but the events didn't stop there. The spectre wouldn't stop touching my mum's face one night. She said it felt like spider webs all over her and she couldn't get them off. My brother and mum were home one day, and my brother said, there's nothing actually here, right? To which the thing responded by opening a kitchen cupboard and then closing it. Another night, my mum had woken up from sleeping on her chair that faced the stairs. 
she thought Coco was coming down the stairs. So she called for him to come and join her, but the dog was already on her lap. When she looked up, the shadow coming down the stairs was gone. Every morning at 2.30am, the bathroom door upstairs would open or close. This is still unexplained, because it was over carpet, and it took a lot of force to open or close. My grandmother had given me a doll that would rock in a circle and play music, but you had to wind it up first. One day I was just chilling in my room, minding my own business, and it started playing on its own. The attic window would open on its own too, and we never used the attic. We never used it to the point my brother pushed his dresser in front of the door like I said before. He did it to make sure the door would stop rattling. I was relaxing in the living room one night, and the mudroom door was swaying, and me being an annoying teen shouted, Could you please stop with the door? And it stopped. My mum also demanded it leave us and the dogs alone, and she heard a very clear, loud single knock upstairs. Things were quiet after a while, until the other side of the house was getting renovated, and then it came back worse than before. My dad was coming down the stairs one day, and it looked like he got pushed. He tried to catch himself, but he slid down the stairs and sliced his foot open on the radiator at the bottom. I mean, it could have been worse, I guess. One time in the middle of the day, I was just relaxing on the couch, when my sleeping dog was thrown off the chair across the room with so much force, he was spun around facing the chair just as he was sleeping on. He landed on the floor right in front of the couch. The chair was rocking so fast and hard, I'm surprised it didn't flip. The poor dog was so scared, he hid behind the toilet on the back porch. We took him out the house for a few hours, and when he got home, he hid again. My dog also used to stare and follow things that were not there. Things would go missing too. Shortly after moving in, I would hear a voice saying my name quietly and a lot, usually in the kitchen, almost as if it were a whisper. The first week after we moved in, we heard what sounded like glass breaking, but it sounded like it was outside, so we called the cops and they looked around to find nothing. I later went to use the bathroom, and found the glass around the light bulb had shattered in the sink. Not a shard of glass anywhere else. This is impossible, because there were four lights above the sink, stretching far enough across that the first and last bulb were not over the sink at all. The last bulb should have hit the toilet if it fell, but like I said, it was the only glass around the bulb. The metal was still intact, and turned on. This was the first sign of there being something wrong. My whole family fell into a depression while living there, and we were constantly fighting with each other. It was never like this before we moved into that house. Sure, we all had our problems, but it was like that house escalated very negative energy. My dad tried to end his own life while living there. I tried to do the same, and my brother straight up left. And I know my mum was giving up too, because she just wanted to leave everything and go. I strongly believe that house, or whatever entity our neighbour summoned, that witch, tore my family apart. I have served in the United States military, 
as a petty officer in the navy, and as a master at arms. I served the entirety of my tour in Okinawa, Japan, which, if you're in the navy, is one of the most boring billets out there. The first year and a half there, I probably only had two calls, both being medical emergencies. We have three tiny bases that absolutely almost nothing happens on and a small little patch of land on the largest base of the island, Cadena, Joint Air Base, for our offices and headquarters. So the entirety of us, Master of Arms, are split into different sections for obvious reasons. This didn't happen to me, but my section was on shift the night it did, and I had an almost front row seat for the entire thing. At night we have to make multiple rounds to make sure our buildings are locked, and that no one is trying to break in. Again, I'm not going to say how or when, but on this night we had at least already made a check on the building, so we knew that everything was okay. So the group I'm assigned to is on the Camp Shields, which is right down the road from the base, and where we come from in order to do our checks. Since the buildings are on Cadena, the Air Force Security also patrols the area and usually helps us out. One night we get a call from the Air Force Dispatcher, and they say they had just received a call from our HQ building. No one spoke on the other end, but it was a solid 10 seconds of silence before the dispatcher heard the phone get hung up. A supervisor for our group, another higher ranking petty officer who I've worked with for a while and is a super cool dude, takes one of the other guys and they load up and zip over there. When they come around the bend to where the buildings are, the first thing they see is our HQ, and that one of the side doors is wide open, and it's nothing but pitch black inside. Again, we had checked the buildings earlier, and knew that this door was shut, locked and secure. So what was probably the first time in what legitimately had to be at least 10 years, our officers drew their weapons and cleared the building for a real life situation. It may not shock any of you to learn they didn't find anyone or anything out of place. There is a pretty good chance that the whole thing was a prank, but Okinawa is one of the most haunted places on earth, and that place is super creepy at night, even with another person and a gun. As a little fun side story, one night I was assigned there. I happened to not be fully geared up, for reasons, and we happened to be short-staffed that night as well. And because needs and musts, we had to check the building and only I was available. Alone. With nothing but a flashlight. And I had to walk around between these buildings in the middle of the night, in the pitch darkness. And I don't mind admitting I was terrified. I was rounding the corner to the front of HQ, and all of a sudden I hear pounding feet darting towards me. I jump about a mile in the air, fumble the flashlight, and I'm jerking myself in all directions to try and find whoever it is. I realize after a moment that the sound is still going on, and I look up to see the flag flapping in the wind. Honestly, not one of my best moments. There are tons of stories and urban legends on the base as well. If you Google images to search CFAO Headquarters Okinawa, the very first result is RHQ. You can see the flagpole of doom.
This happened during my final year in college. I took a fun class called Theatre in LA, which is basically a class where you watch different plays once a week all over LA. Since the theatres are all over the place and not everyone had a car, the professor organised a carpool system you could volunteer into. I know what it's like to be carless in LA, so I volunteered to drive someone around and I got partnered with Bob. It started out okay. He really made himself comfortable in my car, changing the music nonstop and going through my glove compartment, snacks and water without asking me, but whatever. I've met a lot of people with boundary issues before. Things started picking up when we found out we had the same taste in music. We got talking. I mentioned I had a fake ID and he mentioned he smoked up. I mentioned I wanted to try weed, but I haven't had the opportunity to, as I'm non-American and only moved to the US for college, too nerdy to get invited to fun stuff, and so far so good. Then my mum called. I had to answer, since my mum is the type who would keep calling until you'd answer. My car has one of those Bluetooth speakers, so he could hear the entire conversation. But my mum and I were speaking in Indonesian, so I didn't care. At random parts of the conversation, he'd start giggling, and it was making me really self-conscious. Did he think I sounded funny? After I hung up, I asked, what's so funny? Heh, <laughs> nothing. Okay, so now we're driving in an awkward silence. Then he started making this weird hee hee noise. It was a cross between a bray and a wheeze and a giggle. I asked him if he was okay, if he was having an asthma attack or something. He said it was fine. And at random parts of the drive, he'd laugh on his own and make that weird noise. Things are getting weird now. We finally arrived at the theater and I quickly talked to the other people to get away from him. Then realized loudly, he yelled, hey, take your fake ID out and buy me booze. Why are you yelling that out loud? Come on, buy booze, buy booze. This girl quickly rescued me by dragging me to the bathroom with her. Apparently he was harassing her earlier for cocaine. She doesn't do coke or even said anything about it. He met her for the first time ever. And the first thing he said was, hey, do you have coke? Anyway, the play was over close to midnight and it was time to go home. Bob went, hey, do you want to find weed? Drive us downtown and let's look for some. No, I'm not driving downtown in the middle of the night. I told him no. And he kept on whining and chanting. This was before medical marijuana was legalized, so I kept telling him to shut up. During the car ride back, he kept alternating between whining and chanting, let's get weed, and I wanna stop at a food joint, and laughing randomly on his own. Thanks to the jam trying to get out of the movie theater, it was past midnight, so I was exhausted. I was in no mood to eat, even if he were normal. And I kept telling him that I had plenty of snacks in the car, and he could help himself to, which he did but he wouldn't stop whining. I just ended up turning it all out, but he never stopped. I was so relieved when I dropped him off. The next day was Saturday and I was woken up by a phone call. It was Bob, since he had my number as we were carpool buddies. Hello. I had no idea why he was shouting. There was no noise in the background. Buy me booze. You have fake ID, you need to buy me booze. What the hell? He woke me up for that? I was half asleep told him very bluntly to piss off. After that, 
I constantly got calls from Bob at random times, including the middle of the night. Most of them would just be asking for a free ride or booze or whatever. He wouldn't stop laughing. He wouldn't say anything, he'd just laugh. He had various different laughs too. The evil scientist, the cartoon villain, the Mickey Mouse on helium laugh. And I know this sounds comical, but I was petrified. The weirdest call I got from him was at 2am. He went, hey, I found a storage container on campus. I'm in it now, join me. He tried asking me where I was on campus so we could hang out, but obviously I didn't tell him. He actually replied with, I'll just follow you back next time. Which doesn't sound that creepy, but with Bob saying it, I thought he'd be wearing a shawl made of entrails soon enough. Obviously I had to end this arrangement, but I was scared of getting on his bad side since he was giving me mentally unstable vibes. I lied and told him that my very conservative Asian parents were worried about me driving alone at night with a strange man. So they insisted on me carpooling with a family friend instead. Out of desperation, I went to the only person in class I sort of knew and also had a car, Steve, and I explained the situation. Steve is someone I've met once at a party, but luckily he was awesome. And he agreed to back up my story and drive me to the theater for the rest of the semester. Luckily for me, Steve happened to be Asian too. So the story seemed believable because yes, Bob questioned me about it. Steve also happened to be really buff and made sure he always placed himself in between Bob and me. So Bob kind of left me alone after that. I blocked Bob's number, told him I changed it and conveniently kept forgetting to give it to him. Bob apparently had a hard time finding another carpool buddy. Everyone found him creepy and no one lasted more than one ride with him and eventually stopped coming to the class. I think the professor failed him too. I do feel bad because I think the guy may have some untreated mental issues or a drug problem, but that dude really scared me. I have a number of stories about my time in the armed forces. This one is from basic training. Fort Benning just got back a few months ago. We had this one private who was getting medically discharged due to some physical defect, despite being ripped out of his mind. This little dude was on his way out. But if anyone here has ever gotten discharged from basic, you know, it's a long process. So one night we got messed up pretty hard by a drill sergeant who will hereby be referred to as DS. So DS was a master mind messer. And that's exactly what he did to us that night. He finally called it a night and let us go to sleep. Well, private crazy is still all pissed. I mean, he's leaving. Why does he have to get so messed up? So he's pissed and walks around after lights out. So one of the privates in the bunk next to him, a private well known to be an unapologetic ass, tells him to shut the hell up. So private crazy kicks this other guy's bed. And that guy responds with, wow, you're a hard ass. And after that, private crazy says he doesn't remember a thing. Private crazy starts walking around the kill zone. He goes over to the workout area and starts lifting. People ignore it, whatever, he's just blowing off steam. Then he does a tribal war dance. 
He was of islander descent, and now people are telling him to be quiet. Then, barefooted, he walks back into the kill zone and up to one of the pillars. He starts kicking the pillar until his foot is bleeding. Now people are just like, what are you doing? After he's done proving the point he had with the pillar, he sits down in the center of the room with 50 men. He just sits down and guess whose bunk he's staring at? Private ass. Private Crazy starts saying in a high pitch and unnatural tone, the private's last name and says, eight minutes. Everyone starts panicking. Private Crazy get up, suddenly cuts himself on some rope that we keep in the bay for a wider range of reasons, goes back to the other private's bed and starts staring at him until he's shouting in unnatural voices. Out of nowhere, Private Crazy jumped out the window. A bunch of guys stopped him and started dragging him to DS his office. He comes out and asks what the hell is going on. Well, the only answer is that Private Crazy threw his entire jar of marbles off a bridge. He calls the military police and it takes six men, all whom are bigger than Private Crazy to take him downstairs. Once they're down, he got loose, but luckily Private Biceps, one of the biggest guys in the platoon, came down to tackle him. The entire time he's yelling the original guy's name. So when the military police show up and slap the cuffs on, he blinks and bam, back to normal. He had no idea what happened. Mind you, that's only the first story. This story messed me up. It didn't happen in my platoon's bay, and I don't remember which platoon it did happen to. But the only thing I remember from this story is that the only two witnesses to it were literally frozen with fear. So much so they couldn't move or speak. Two guys were laying in a bed on the top bunks and neither could fall asleep. Fireguard was sitting at the desk talking and laughing. Their DS must not have been on the CQ that night. So they were looking around the bay when they both saw it. How they both described it was that it was almost amorphous. This thing, except with a weird arm with claws, but looked like some sort of shadow death creature. It didn't look solid, but they could also tell it wasn't entirely incorporeal. They watched it as it slowly pulled itself onto the lockers across the room with its single long arm, inch forward onto the lockers and then let itself fall to the ground, and then repeat this on the next locker and the next, but it was silent as it did so. These two privates were damn near crapping themselves, and eventually it just disappeared. In a comedic note, another platoon, who was seeing this too, asked their DS what the deal was. His response was, well, I guess it's haunted. Finally, this is a fireguard story. Two of my buddies are on fire guard and they're making their rounds. Well, this one guy literally took a half hour in the bathroom. After the guy in the bathroom finishes up, he steps out of the stall and he sees his partner for the shift. He freezes and I mean, it's kind of awkward since he's just done doing what he's doing. So he assumed he heard when things got weird. So slowly, with shame, he says the guy's name to no response. 
The first guy asked the second what he's doing in there. Well, I guess that shook him. So he comes and says, Oh, I saw something in the kill zone, so I came here to wait for you. He's freaked out and asks him to explain. So he says, while well, I was watching the door, but when I looked in the kill zone, I saw these kids playing there. So they checked and it was clear. But from that point, they didn't make rounds around the kill zone. They just stayed at the desk. But as they were walking back to the front, the first private looks out the window to one of the balconies outside where the chairs and such were for when the DSs need a break. He looked out and thought he saw someone sitting in a chair. He walked over to the window to make sure it was a DS, but then realized there was no one there. This happened when I was about four or five. Among my siblings and cousins, we always said that my grandma's house was haunted. You could hear footsteps and whispers at night, and the back room would always be colder and would get a heavy oppressive feeling. So one day, all of the older kids went to hang out, and my parents took my grandma to run errands, so it was only me and my aunt and uncle at home. They were cleaning the backyard, and I was playing with toys in the dirt. For whichever reason, I can't remember, I went inside and went into the back room, which was my grandma's at the time. As I stood there, I remember that heavy feeling starting to creep in. There was a big window that I looked out into the backyard, and I decided to go to it. As I moved the curtain, I could see this really old trailer that sat in the backyard that was used for storage. The doorway would have only been about five feet from the window. As I looked out, I immediately noticed a figure in the doorway of the trailer. It filled most of the doorway. It was dressed in a long black dress with like a turtleneck, the dress being super black. I don't think I've ever seen such a pure black in my life. It had a bald, round, wrinkly head with tall, pointy ears. Think of the goblins from Harry Potter and the hands ended in long, sharp talons. All the skin of this thing was really sickly, this shade of green, and it just stood in the trailer staring back at me. Then it began to shake its head and index finger as if to say, no, like you'd tell a little kid. After that, it slid out of view and the heavy feeling lifted. I don't recall what I did after that, but I don't remember feeling scared. More confused, I would say. I had forgotten about the event until years and years passed, when the siblings were sitting around reminiscing after my grandma passed, and my sister said she remembered seeing something similar. She said she also saw a woman in a long red dress and a pumpkin for a head sitting by the water fountain or bird bath. The house isn't in the family anymore, so I can't say that something else happened, but we all suspect that there was a witch residing in or around grandma's house. When I was a freshman in college, I lived in one of the oldest buildings on campus, built around 1891. The campus had originally been a teaching college for young women, and for some time when a young girl named Florence was attending the school during World War I, she had been involved with a young man at the time who had been drafted to fight overseas, and he promised to keep in touch with Florence. 
They had written letters to one another over time, but the letters from Florence's lover had slowly stopped over the course of a few weeks. During this time, Florence became desperately depressed. At the time that she was living in the building, there had been a sunroom on the fourth floor that had several beams across the ceiling. Florence also lived at the very end of the sunroom. During her depression, Florence sadly took a rope and used it to hang herself from the end of the ceiling at the sunroom. Not long after, Florence's lover returned home safely, only to hear of Florence's passing. He returned to her hometown and then ended his own life in the hopes to being reunited with his love. Fast forward almost a century to 2011. I was moving into my room for the first time and I happened to be in the same building that Florence had lived in, at the base of the stairs that led up to her old room. The entire building had been renovated in 2003. The sunroom was closed off. Florence's room became a storage room and the fourth floor was separated into two wings, one for women and one for men. My roommate finally made it and we both began to settle in and make friends with our neighbors. We had eventually brought a group of our friends to hang out with us just outside of our room amongst some of our neighbors. When one of our friends asked if they could do a seance in our room, considering how near our room was to Florence's old room. I looked to my roommate not knowing what to say. She was okay with it, eventually, but didn't stay for the whole seance. We created a Ouija board out of a piece of paper and used a pencil as the planchette. We didn't get many responses, however the scariest part was everything that happened the night after everyone left. My roommate decided she wasn't comfortable staying there that night and stayed with some friends for the night and a few nights following. I stayed back. A few hours after I went to bed, I was awoken to the sound of branches breaking right by the head of my bed. I sat straight up and started to look around the room to see what could have made that sound and had noticed that my roommate's message board had detached from the wall. It slid down the wall and landed on her desk as soon as I saw it detach. The worst part was the message board was on the complete opposite end of the room as the head of my bed, and I heard the cracking right next to my head. I immediately texted my roommate about what happened and never played with a Ouija board in that room again. I was doing guard duty in the army one night. We had some training exercise in an abandoned camp facility, and my buddy and I had been assigned to watch over some vehicles that we had parked in a large empty warehouse. We were the only ones in the camp facility, as there was nothing else valuable that had to be watched overnight. My buddy and I had tied hammocks between the vehicles to get a bit more comfortable for the overnight watch. When we suddenly saw a pack of wild dogs standing outside the doors to the warehouse. Now, these doors were wide open and nothing was stopping the dogs from coming in at all but they just stood there. 15 to 20 dogs lined up at the entrance to the abandoned warehouse, watching us. Suddenly, as if someone had flipped a switch, they all started barking and howling in our direction. I say our direction, because when I discussed it later with him, we both agreed that it felt like the dogs were barking at something else in the entirely abandoned warehouse. 
my buddy and I were completely terrified. First, that we might have gotten swarmed by dogs, and second, whatever those dogs were barking at. We started to radio for help, but suddenly the pack of dogs stopped barking and left. It was as if they were never there. That was a long night of guard duty, I can tell you. We had this guy at my school, who kind of had a mental breakdown near the end of the semester, and stopped taking his meds and ran into the woods, and was never found again. But he was banned on campus, for supposedly attempting to assault someone. But anyway, upon arriving back from Christmas break, we were having a little board game night in the dorm common area, and the elevator was behind us. Around 1am or so, the elevator doors open, and we saw him glaring at us. Thinking he was alive, we all got up and started our way to the elevator, and then the door shut, and we started opening the elevator, and finally, they opened, and some guy got off and asked him which floor he came from, and did anyone get off? He said first, no. We immediately called campus security, and they started reviewing the tapes, and the only thing they could find was the elevator, starting on the first floor, going up to the second, which we were on, and then us getting up, rushing to the door, then it closed, and then another guy called the elevator and him getting on and off. But another weird thing is we were doing humans versus zombies that March. We had a mission where we had to protect the water from some pond in the woods on the pier. And then the next day we had another mission where we had to pass the pond. And we found all of the guys clothes just folded up on the pier. And since it was late, we know nobody went out to that place. And the next mission was in the morning. So we were the only ones there the whole night. My great-grandmother Emily owned a house on Glenwood Avenue in Owosso. She was fairly well off, so she let my mum's mother move into her house when she was falling on hard times with her husband and their kids, and my great-grandmother Emily moved out. I'm going to try to make this as easy to understand as possible to who is who, so I'm going to lay out who moved into the house first. My grandma, Pat, who is my mother's mother, has three kids, Charlotte, my mother, Chris, and James. She was married to a man called Butch, who also had three kids, Sandy, Lee, and Greg. These are all events that my mum and grandma, Pat, both separately told me throughout my life. I'm 22 now, and have told my friends about them through the years. I've been hearing these stories for a while and think it's time to share these experiences. I want to give a bit of information about my great-grandma Emily when she lived there. She told my grandma that some strange things had been happening in the house when she was in bed. It felt like a cat walked over her and she had no animals. She told my grandma that something would tug her blanket at the end of her bed when she would have to clutch onto it to keep it there or it would be pulled off. Water would also run in the bathroom constantly, and she would have to get up and turn it off throughout the night. My mum moved into the house, and she made some friends around the neighbourhood. They would tease her about how a witch lived there before, and did witchcraft in the basement, and said the house was haunted. My mum brushed it off, thinking they were trying to scare her. My mum said that her and her stepsister Sandy shared a room, 
and she said that red glowing eyes would look at them in the closet. My mum said they would be so scared that they would sleep in the same bed, and Sandy even ran and flipped on the light and moved the toys around in the closet, thinking it was just a light. But as soon as the light would flick back off and Sandy got back into bed with my mum, they would reappear. My mum told me that they would pull long black hairs from the drywall leading to the staircase and that the drywall would literally just crumble. She also told me that one night my grandma Pat was waiting for her husband Butch to get home. She was watching TV in the living room and she was laying on a pull out bed. She sat up to get a drink of water and had her feet on the floor and something grabbed her ankle and squeezed. It shook her so hard from underneath the bed that it left a bruise. She looked under the bed thinking it was one of the kids and she saw nothing was there. So she yelled for my mum to come out with her until her husband got home. She told my mum what happened and they were both terrified. I asked my grandma about this and she told me the exact same thing. My grandma also told me that she'd seen large black figures in the home multiple times. I just got off the phone with my grandma to try and get everything as accurate as possible. She didn't have much time because she was at work, but she did tell me that a man hung himself in the basement and that she would see things in the kitchen a lot, like large black figures. The basement door was in the kitchen. She said that my mom would too, to the point that she would scream and cry multiple times from the ages of two and a half and told me that they moved out once when my mum was younger because of the weird stuff that was going on and someone else moved in for a while, but they had to move back several years later, which was when she was grabbed from under the bed. She said something grabbed her by the ankle and shook the hell out of it. My great grandmother Emily owned the house the entire time, which is why they ended up back there. She also said that her son James had seen the red glowing eyes and all of the other kids would hear and see things constantly. But after things got physical with her and it grabbed her ankle, she got out of there for her own good. She also said that renters wouldn't stop moving out of the house very quickly until someone purchased it years later and it had been blessed. She thinks they're still living there to this day. When I was around 15, my mum told me about this again because it was so scary and interesting to me. I would have my mum retell me everything that happened in the house all the time. And I ended up finding the house online while I was searching through articles to see if any information was available about it. I found that right down the street was Rosevare Park and Woods and is said to be one of the most haunted places in Owasso. I'm not sure if it has any correlation with the house but I just thought it was strange. I thought I would share with you about my life as a VBSS operator on board the USS Gary. Basically, a VBSS team is a part-time volunteer job within the US Navy. It stands for Visit, Board, Search and Seizure. And as the name states, we visit enemy ships, board them, search them, and seize them of all suspicious activity. We mainly focus on counter piracy slash smuggling. 
However, we do conduct other missions, such as hostage rescue and other things that should be remained classified. The job is a part-time job, one you do on the side while you have your main job on board the ship. However, I was one of the few that solely did VBSS. Well, let me correct that. I had another job. I was an undesignated seaman. However, I carried out duties on that job maybe one day a week. I will try and tell you some weird and creepy things that happened during my time in the Navy while still staying inside the limits of information I'm allowed to tell. Keep in mind these stories are few and far between and most of our missions consisted of arriving at boats and arresting innocent guys who were just at the wrong place at the wrong time. The first one I'm going to share with you was about five years ago. We got a call that a boat had been spotted about a half mile out from the ship and we were to get geared up. As VBSS, our gear consists of an M4 assault rifle, a Sig Sauer P226 handgun, a combat knife, three mags of ammo and a helmet. We got geared up and entered our rubber riding craft. I remember specifically on this day, I had a terrible headache and focusing was very hard for me. I remember my petty officer looked over at me as we were closing in on the boat and said I looked like I was taking it up the arse. As we got up to the boat, we saw four men, unarmed, and they looked to be about 50 years old. After realizing they weren't a threat, we just handcuffed them and my teammate asked them what they were doing this far out at sea. The man responded that they were running from the powerful one. We didn't know what the hell they were talking about. So when we asked them for further information, one of them said they were just on a fishing trip yesterday off the coast and a fog came over them and the powerful one teleported them here. Okay. Well, there was no way they could have gone from a few miles off the coast to 500 miles out at sea in a day. The men looked visibly shaken and one of them even had a fresh gash down the back that he claimed was caused by the powerful one. I don't know if they were crazy or something is actually out there, but either way, it gave us a good scare. The next story was about two years ago. This story still gives me goosebumps to this day because it was one of the very few actual gunfights I have been in. I'm not talking about a few warning shots or injury shots. I mean a fully fledged firefight between us and the enemy. Every combat veteran knows what I'm talking about when I say there are no atheists in a gunfight. But anyway, we received a call that armed pirates were spotted a mile off from the ship, smuggling unknown bagged contents and that we needed to take them into custody. Even though they were armed, none of us expected to get into a firefight because we came across armed men all the time and most of them just ditched their guns into the ocean to rid themselves of evidence, which is a smart move if you ask me. However, these men didn't. As soon as we zeroed in on their craft, we receive immediate enemy fire. As experienced operators, 
I can officially say we all crapped ourselves. Yes, a normal gunfight is scary, but in the middle of the ocean, on a motorized watercraft with no protective walls, you are basically a sitting duck. We all flat bellied, just waiting for our craft to get penetrated with a bullet for us to sink. One of my teammates got up in a kneel position and returned fire. And when he did, I guess it struck a bit of bravery in all of us as we did the same. As VBSS operators, we are taught to shoot to wound, never to kill, because our job is not to kill. Our job is to capture and allow higher ups to gather intel from interrogation. There were 10 gunmen on the enemy boat, and 13 of us. I remember I got one of the pirates in the knee. One of my teammates and still good friends to this day, Henry, got hit in the thigh and couldn't do anything for about six months. Eventually we couldn't hold any longer and a helicopter was called in and they got gunned down. Thankfully no one died, but it was still a frightening and terrifying experience. This story is probably one of the more creepy and bone chilling ones on the list, just due to the fact there was no rational explanation for it. Like normal, we got a call that there was a suspicious vessel and that we needed to check it out. This was different though, because we were working with a cargo ship. Working with big ships is always scary, because of all that can go wrong, and you always have that feeling that there was some place you missed or didn't check. Since the hull of this ship was elevated, we had to be helicoptered in. So we got loaded up and got into the helicopter. It was about a 20 minute ride out to where the ship was. And when we got to it, we fast roped out on deck. There wasn't anyone on the top deck, which we found weird, especially for a ship of this size and this far out at sea. After conducting search protocol for a good half hour on the top deck and bridge and finding absolutely no one, we assumed that maybe they had caught our ship on their radar system and went to hide under deck. We went down below and to make a long story short, we didn't find anyone there either. The entire team was baffled. There was absolutely no way a ship around 600 miles out in the Atlantic could have gotten there unmanned. We started looking inside large freight crates and still found nothing. No one knew how this was possible. And then our lieutenant called us over to come to look at something that he had found. There was a piece of paper and very poorly etched into the paper was the words, help us. This freaked us out. I'm not sure what exactly happened to the ship after we left, but I couldn't get off it quick enough. I remember that night, I sat in my room contemplating quitting. It's the only time I have ever truly considered it. As VBSS operators, we are taught that when conducting a search, to never have your weapon safety on until right before you engage an enemy. You will see where I'm going with this in a second. This story isn't very long, nor is it very shocking, but I thought it was interesting enough to share. We were conducting an op on a small fishing vessel and the way it was set up was me and my buddy were going to board first while the others waited for us to clear it out. Now that I think about it, 
it was a stupid move, because if there had been 10 armed pirates on the boat, we would have been dead. But nonetheless, we did as we were told. We had boarded, and I was covering my buddy six while we were about to turn into a doorway leading into the bridge. When we were about 10 feet from the door, a man all of a sudden bolts from around the corner, and it terrified us. My buddy had his safety off and accidentally pulled the trigger and got the dude right in the head. Man, was that a shit show. The Navy had to pay quite a bit to the family and my buddy ended up getting court-martialed. He ended up not getting discharged and got to return to active duty. But still, it was a damn mess. This is one of the more creepy ones and was actually pretty recent. Like how most of these stories start, we got a call saying there was an unidentified craft close by. When we arrived to the boat, there were six men on it. We went through procedure, yelling with our guns pointed. Basically the Navy's way of letting enemies know our dick is bigger. And when they were contained, Petty Officer asked them what they were doing. One of them came forward and said how they were heading out to an oil rig but ended up getting tailed by a North Korean submarine and that they were being followed. They said they had seen the big flag painted on the side of the bridge and everything. We thought nothing of it because we knew North Korea carried out very, very few naval operations. And when they did, it was never outside their own waters in very small submarines, not capable of locking onto any object. We were out in the middle of the Atlantic and after taking the men on board the Gary, our rear admiral told us that they had picked up a submarine of quite substantial size on their radar. However, it disappeared before they could do anything. He told us it was unlike anything they had seen before because a submarine of that size could not go stealth like that. It really makes you wonder, what if North Korea is capable of more than we think? Who knows what secrets they're keeping hidden over there. As I've stated before, the life of a VBSS operator is never easy. And if you're wanting to do this job, I suggest you prepare yourselves for the best way you can. In some way, I would say it's even harder than what Marines and soldiers have to do. I'm in no way disrespecting the incredibly hard stuff they have to go through. However, in the VBSS world, the ocean can make things a lot more difficult. This story I'm about to tell you happened around four years ago, when I was still pretty new to the Navy. Just like most of these stories start out, the commanding officer of the Gary told us a pirate vessel had been spotted not too far from our ship. He told us this call was not like any other call though. He told us they could have a potential hostage with them and could be hostile. Now, normally when this happens, they usually call in more experienced and better trained men like Navy SEALs and Marine Maritime Raid Forces. But for whatever reason, they deemed us able to carry out the mission. We were all ready. However, every one of us would be lying if we said we weren't secretly shitting ourselves, especially me still being considered the new guy on the team. We got geared up and headed out as soon as we could. Hostage situations are always more intense due to the fact that someone's life is at stake. And 
It is a no-fail mission. We had a helicopter escort with an a .50 cal door gun locked and loaded on Overwatch in case stuff went south. It took us about seven minutes to arrive to the vessel, and as soon as we got there, we immediately started taking action. We began pointing our guns at the armed men on the boat, screaming your typical orders like "Get down" or "Hands above your head." You'd be surprised how much we sound like police officers at times. We all expected them to either return fire or resist. However, they didn't. They didn't follow our orders, but they put their guns down and just stood there looking at us. We were all weirded out by this, but we did not let this opportunity go. We rushed the deck, detained every man we could find, and went to receive the package—military slang for rescue the hostage. We found her below deck. She looked to be around 19, African ethnicity. And beaten up pretty badly, we immediately got her on our craft and started speeding back to the USS Gary as quickly as we could. She started mumbling an inaudible message, but we pretty quickly made out the words "Watch out." It was at that very moment we heard the helicopters .50 cal start unloading behind us. When we were getting back to the ship and spoke to the helicopter pilots. They told us that as we were heading back, a hidden man had crept up from below deck, and was aiming an RPG at our craft. Needless to say, that scared the crap out of all of us. And I still say to this day, if it had not been for whoever was manning that door gun, me and my teammates would not be alive today. The next story is on the creepier side. It will definitely make you wonder. It was about a year and a half ago. We get a call: pirate spotted. Everything is normal. We suit up, head out with a helicopter escorting us to provide information back to the Gary, and we arrive to the boat the pirates were on. However, upon further inspection, we realize that there is no one on the boat. All of us are baffled, and when we radio up the chopper to ask what the hell is up, he says he had eyes on them, looked away for a second. And when he looked back, they were all gone, like they had never been there. The helicopter usually arrives a few minutes before we do, so he can scout the area out. And he swore that when he arrived, they were on the boat, and seconds before, he looked away and they were gone. No one can explain what happened to this day, and we never found out what happened to the men who were on that boat. This next story takes place around a year ago. Being a specialized group in the U.S. Navy, sometimes as VBSS operators, we get to work with Navy SEALs. However, it is extremely rare, and when we do, it's usually just a training exercise. But this time was different. It was the real deal. We never take these opportunities lightly, and are always a hundred percent serious, due to the fact that these guys are amazing at what they do. Let me tell you. If you ever get a chance to do anything with a Navy SEAL, take that opportunity. They are some of the most class guys I have and ever will meet. Not to mention how amazingly trained and highly skilled operators they are. This particular call was to attach to a SEAL unit and conduct a close quarters raid on an undocumented whaling ship with armed crew members that was holding something the Navy wanted. 
We weren't allowed to know what they were looking for, and to this day, I still don't know exactly what the seals were supposed to be looking for, but we carried out our job regardless. Now our job was to basically be at the seals' backs and aid them in anything they needed while they did the dirty work. We all got geared up and began our operation. The seals arrived via helicopter assertion, and we did our usual watercraft approach. There were 20 of the VBSS men, including myself and about eight seals. We climbed up the side of the hull and entered the deck using a grapple ladder. And just to give you guys a peek at how amazing the seals are, there were probably about 15 armed men on the deck alone. And in the short 30 seconds it took us to get there, the eight Navy seals had already detained every single one of them and were on their way below deck. We kept watch on deck while the SEALs were conducting their mission. We were up there and just waited for a good hour, and all of a sudden, the SEALs come bursting out the door that leads below deck, holding something that looks to be a body bag. Whoever or whatever was in that bag was squirming violently and making inhuman noises. When we arrived back at the Gary, we were immediately led to a room on the ship that I had never seen before or since, and firmly instructed to never speak about what we saw to anyone. I very well may be stepping out of line telling this story, but I think the public needs to know that there is a lot, and I mean a lot of things, the military and government are hiding from you. This next story is kind of weird because it was kind of creepy but at the same time was just very odd. I was sitting in my room during my rest period with a few other guys on the VBSS team, listening to Nickelback. I know, I know, we have awful taste in music, but the way the particular song was playing, How You Remind Me, not that it's important, but it's a great song, you should listen to it, and just talking about random stuff, all of a sudden, our lieutenant bursts through the door and tells us to get suited up, because there were three pirate crafts pursuing the ship. We sprung to our feet and immediately met up with the rest of the team on deck. We were not going to be leaving the deck, which was relieving, but we were going to engage the craft if they got too close to the ship. We split up into three teams of five, one for each craft. Each team had a different colour name, red, blue, and yellow. The blue team went to the port side of the ship and aimed our weapons at one of the crafts. We started screaming at them to drop their weapons and put their hands up. However, they did not obey and kept coming closer to the ship. Eventually, I heard the lieutenant scream engage and we began firing. Here's the weird part though. We began firing at them and it was like we weren't even hitting them. I thought we were just missing, but then I looked harder in my scope and made sure I nailed the guy right in the leg, and I know I hit him even to this day, but it didn't even create a wound. The guy didn't flinch. They just stared at us. I looked over at my buddy and asked him what the hell was going on, and he looked just as confused as I did. I yelled out to the other teams if the same thing was happening to them, and they said that none of their bullets were doing anything. It was at that moment, all of a sudden, all three pirate crafts turned around and sped off in the direction they came. 
We were all left speechless and stood there looking at each other for a good five minutes, just trying to comprehend what we had experienced. Still, no one knows what was causing those men to not be affected by all of the M4 5.56 bullets, and we have not experienced anything similar since. Back in high school, before I enlisted, I knew this guy named Corey. We were never best friends, but we spoke occasionally. He was a quieter kid, but every now and then, when we did talk, the subject of him moving away after high school to Somalia and becoming a freedom fighter against their awful government came up. Always thought he was kind of crazy, but I always laughed and told him to go for it, because who knew how Somalia needed help? Well, about two and a half years ago, while the Gary is conducting operations near the coast of Somalia, we get a call that a pirate vessel was circling the ship. We got geared up, and upon arriving to the vessel, we began detaining the men on the boat. And guess who I see on the boat with three other pirates? Good old Corey. I asked him how the hell he got into pirating, and he just looked at me. Never thought I would have run into crazy Corey, or that he would have actually gone through with his plans, let alone me running to him seven years down the road halfway across the world. I never found out what happened to him, but it still amazes me to this day that something so unlikely would happen. This takes place in La Pateca, which is a rural area just south of Monterrey in Mexico. When I was a little girl, we always had legends of the witches in the wild. Don't go out alone. Don't stay out so late at night. If you do, the witches will come and take you away. My mama would tell me and my brother Armando every day. Mama would not let me or Armando go anywhere unless it was both of us, and the furthest we could go was the little store a mile away, when we needed groceries. We were not well off with money, so we had to walk everywhere. When Armando and I got done working the fields, Mama would let us play until it was night time. Sometimes we would play tag with our friends, sometimes Papa would chase us around or take us exploring in the woods. The exploring was fun, because we got to see animals, but we also saw the little old huts where the witches lived. Everyone called them the witches, because they were weird, and would constantly do black magic and talk to themselves. One day, Armando and I were playing alone, because Papa was tired from working on the field all day, and Mama was making supper. We went to the woods, and started to explore, but we went too deep and got lost. I cried and cried because I wanted Mama, but nobody heard us, so we kept walking around. After a little bit, an old lady heard us and said she would help us. No, you're a witch, and you're going to take us away, yelled Armando. No, no, mijo. I know where your mummy and papi are, she said. I cried and told Armando that I wanted to go home, so he gave up and told the lady to help us. Okay, follow me. After a while, she took us to a house we didn't know, but said Mama and Papa were inside, so we went. Without thinking, we went in, and the lady suddenly grabs us and starts carrying us, screaming 
into another room. She threw us in and locked the door. Armando kept banging on it and yelling to let us go, and I just cried and cried. It was quite quiet, but I thought I kept heard her saying, Glory to God, he has given me pure blood of the innocent. With this, I'm going to seek my revenge against those who have done things to me in the past. I don't exactly remember how much time passed because I was tired after crying for so long. According to Papa, we were not home, so he went around town looking for us until he came into the woods to look. He said he stopped at the house where we were at because something made him look there. When Papa called out to the house inside, the witch kept yelling at him to go away, but he said he thought he heard Armando, so he broke in to look around. He found us and said he heard banging, which showed him where we were. When he found us, he hugged us and took us away, telling her that if he ever saw her near the house again or the kids, he would end her. Mama was crying so hard when we saw her that it made me cry again. Papa yelled at us for being dumb and going out so far, and Armando just looked at the floor. After that, Mama didn't let us go out anymore without her or Papa until we were teenagers. Every day I thank God for not letting me and Armando get into more danger that day. I do not know what the witch wanted to do to us, but I don't think I want to know either. Hey guys, it's Mort here, and thank you for listening. There are new podcast episodes every Wednesday evening. And for more material, check out my YouTube, Mortis Media, where we publish new stories every Tuesday and Thursday and a big compilation of over three and a half hours every Saturday too. If you'd like to share your story to have it featured on the channel, be sure to check out the links, including my email and our subreddit, where you can submit your scary stories to have them featured here as well. If you'd like to support the podcast and or channel, you can find a link to our Patreon too, where you get a bunch of rewards like early access and more. Don't forget to check me out on YouTube at Mortis Media for even more fresh content. And until next time, stay awesome.